Rapino. Bright puts it over the bar. Safe. <laughs> Missed the net. Benison. Goal. O'Hara. Off the post. Harting. Off there. Did it go in? Wow. Sweden wins. Now, and now what's up, everybody? Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters, season thirteen, episode fourteen. It is Monday, August seventh. Wherever you are in the United States of America or abroad, I say hello. Looks like we're gonna have a new champion in women's soccer this year, huh? That's too bad. That is too bad. All right, season 13, episode 14, like I said, on the program today, a good friend is going to return, Adam Lazarus will join us. He's going to kind of hype a book that's in pre-order, I'll talk about it more in the book club, and we spend an hour talking about all kinds of sports-related things, uh, we'll get to that uh, later. On the show first today is something really cool that we have never done before. Uh, Fred Mangione is on the show today. He was the COO, and I know at one point I might say CEO, so apologies to the actual CEO, but he was the COO of the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, he also spent five years working for the New York Jets. He also got his career started selling tickets uh, to the 1999 Women's World Cup, and that was a team of fine Americans for sure. Uh, they won the World Cup. Good for them. And the whole world celebrated. The whole country celebrated together. Amazing times. Uh, but Fred will join us. And he has amazing stories about opening the Barclays Center, rubbing elbows with Jay-Z, moving up the ladder in front office sports. We've never really talked about the front office before. And um, this is a good opportunity. I want to thank his brother, Tim, uh, for setting it up. And thanks to Fred for all the time and honesty. And we'll get to that in a second. First things first. Max Fried is back. Friday, Max Fried came back and dominated a red-hot Chicago Cubs team. He was awesome. He pitched into the seventh inning. Uh, he had a bunch of strikeouts, not many hits, not many walks. He pitched to the minimum at a certain point, I think maybe through five or through six. He was fantastic. The Braves hit a bunch of home runs, and they won. Uh, then they lost. They gave up eight runs on Saturday, lost eight to six. Gave up six more runs on Sunday, lost. So here's the thing. The pitching, it's just got to be better. And they're so reliant on the home run, it makes me nervous about the playoffs. The most important game of the entire Brave season is going to be game one of the NLDS with Max Fried on the mound in Atlanta. If they don't win that game, they could get picked off and picked off fast like they did by the Phillies last year. That is going to be such a huge game. Max Fried needs to go out and pitch a gem. He really does that day. The pressure is going to be on, and they got to prove they can hit home runs in the postseason too because it's not as easy to hit home runs in October as it is in August. 
And sure, Ozzy Albies just hit his 25th home run. I think he's like the fifth or the sixth Brave already this year with 25 home runs. But they're just they're going to have to be better. Uh, speaking of better, um, Immaculate Grid has swept the nation, right? And uh, I'm pretty good. I had my best one ever the other day when they did three, six stats, like all around. I just crushed that one. Um, it's fun. I think it, the older you are and the longer you've been watching whatever sport you're doing, the, the more the, the better your odds are to create a grid that's full and has a lower score. Because as soon as you get into the 90s to the 80s, those scores, those rarity scores start going way up um, or down, I guess, however you want to put it. But I love the grids. I do them on crossover grid, immaculate grid, which is now baseball reference, has all the sports as well. And there, there's puck doku or however you say that, which is great as well for a hockey one. You get two hockey ones a day, three hockey ones a day really now. Uh, so really fun. Don't know if you guys are playing that, but I really enjoy that. Also, training camps are at full swing. Uh, it's been an interesting week at Saints camp. Uh, Alvin Kamara, we now know, is going to be suspended for three games. And that, I think, is a whew, exhale moment for Saints fans. That looked like six for a while. It could have been five. It could have been four. You know, I think I always hoped it would be one to three as opposed to four to six. And even being at the top end of that one to three, I think that's a huge break. And I think that's fair considering this was an assault on video. You know, and usually when you have the video, it's that much worse. So I think the Saints got off really lucky there. And, I mean, everything out of camp just is that Kamara's been one of the stars. Kamara and Lattimore, our two 2017 Rookie of the Year players, supposedly are having their best camps. I get nervous when we start talking too much about this guy's camp or that guy's camp. I don't care what happens in August. Obviously, all that matters is what happens in September, October, and so on. Uh, but, hey, it's better than him having a bad camp. You know, Michael Thomas is still practiced every day. You know, Cam Jordan just signed another extension. He's going to be a saint for life. He's a Hall of Famer. Cam Jordan's going to the Hall of Fame. What a career he's had. And he's going to do it all in New Orleans. What a great first-round pick that was. Uh, we can go over some bad ones over the years, but that's one of the all-time great first-round picks. You know, so exciting news there. Um, just feel like a really positive week at Saints camp. Uh, the Bills had like 35,000 people for their scrimmage. The Eagles had 50,000 for their scrimmage. Um, the Hall of Fame game was played. Rondé Barber went to the Hall of Fame, a, a Saints pest, uh, someone who tortured the Saints for years with his unbelievable play in Tampa Bay. Uh, so football is getting closer and closer. And after today's show, we're going to go into football mode. There'll be baseball here or there. Uh, we'll get to you, Glassman, I think, although I'm starting to get nervous about that one. Uh, but we'll see what comes together uh, on the next episode, which will be Wednesday in a couple days. I know sometimes I say that it doesn't happen, but unless I die, we'll have a new show Wednesday with Field Yates talking fantasy football from ESPN and Aaron Schatz, formerly of Football Outsiders, the famous Football Outsiders Almanac. We'll get the whole story from him on what happened, uh, where he is now, and uh, he sent me a copy of the Almanac. Uh, it's still as fantastic as it ever was, uh, and we'll get going with football. And we're going to talk to everyone we can. We're going to preview. Kyle. We got to get Stuart Mandel on. I know the Pac-12 is falling apart. Uh, so we're going to have to get Stuart on the show uh, to talk about that as well. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Fred Mangione. Uh, then we'll do a book club update. There's a ton going on with that. And then we'll take another break. We'll talk to Adam Lazarus. 
And then I'll be back with one last thing on the great Buffon, who has retired but has a new job. And we'll talk about that in one last thing. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Fred Mangione. Sportscasters, 24-inch podcast listeners, your favorite podcast host, Steve Bennett, has a new show. It's 3x5 with Steve Bennett. New episodes every Tuesday, and this time it's on YouTube. Search North-South Connection on YouTube for the show. Each week, three lists of five each episode. Like, comment, subscribe. It's 3x5 with Steve Bennett. What's up, Fred? How you doing, man? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me today. I was just, <laughs> I was just about to bring you in, and I was thinking of I'm a big Stern guy, and uh, I don't know if you used to listen back in the day, but there's this uh, whack packer named Crazy Alice, and she would be like, she'd be screaming at Howard, she'd be dropping all these f bombs on him, and then she'd take a breath and she'd be like, "Hey, Fred," because <laughs> she liked Fred, <laughs> <laughs> Fred Norris. I was, I was resisting the temptation to be like, "Hey, Fred." When we started the interview, but yeah, yeah, welcome to the sportscast. Appreciate you uh, jumping on. No problem. Thanks for having me. And I'm a big Stern guy here, being in New York. I actually have a a, a relationship with Gary. Actually, at the oh. Stern show, just because he's a big, he's got a big fandom for a lot of teams I worked for with the True, Jets. New York Jets yep. and the New York Islanders. And yep. um, I actually every year that I was there would get him an interview with the general manager. So if you listen once a year. He does a summer school session yep. when Howard's on vacation and whole interview. And um, I usually set that, you know, I used to set that up for him. And I actually set it up for him this year, too, although I'm no longer at the Jets. So it's um, it's funny that you bring up Stern because everything connects here, especially in New York. No kidding. That's amazing. I've listened literally every day since I was in high school. And, you know, I don't really listen to the current show that much, um, but I have, you know, almost every show from 85 on on my phone so i just listened to like before we were talking i was listening to the infamous wilder uh wilder valmer valmarina is that i don't know the kid from that yeah. 70s show interview and he yeah. said he was sleeping with everyone in hollywood and he had to re <laughs> he had to retract it i was just listening to that i think that was 06 but um gary i think got his start interning with the 80s islanders di dynasty if i'm very very good yeah very, he He's very and he's proud of all that stuff. He, yeah. he has a scrapbook that he once showed me of um, when he got married outside of the Nassau Coliseum. They put a congratulations note there. One of his books, he mentions that he's a really, really big um, Islanders fan. That's actually where I got to know him. You know, I opened up the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, and when we were open a couple of years, as the Islanders were trying to find a new home, they came and right. played a couple of years. And he would we would invite local celebs out to games, and he came out to a couple, and I just got an affiliation with him and then when I left and went to the Jets it was funny he goes you're now you're now you're talking you're yeah, at he's all stepping up. So yeah. I, 
Yeah, just stay close. He's been he's been he's been uh, he's been great to know. He's been very nice. He knows I'm a big fan. He's invited me, you know, to to watch the show a couple times. But him and uh. um, him and and um, his um, his producer do this. They call it summer school. So he came out to camp last year and. Ironically, two weeks ago, I, I just talked to him because he's going to do it again as camp starts next week for the NFL. And um, so it's just funny you start with Stern yeah, because you know I you, was you, just think, thinking of you think these guys, but he's <laughs> a big concert Bruce. Like yeah, I used to always run into him at events, and you know he's obviously a popular figure here locally. Um, you know, coming off that show and everything they've done together. I was going to say, if your next job is with Springsteen. And you're gonna—he's gonna be really happy yeah. with you. Yeah, I know, I know. I don't think I'm gonna up that, but <laughs> in you know. 2011, I think it was uh, the Springsteen tour. Towards the end of it, there started to be some rumors for whatever reason that this was gonna be the last tour, and obviously it wasn't. But there was rumors at that time, and the last show of that tour was in Buffalo, and um, I had a ticket because I had never seen Springsteen and just had gotten one when they went on sale because I wanted to, you know, get him on the list and. Uh, Make sure I see a show, pay my respects, enjoy the music, whatever. And um, as it got closer and closer and the rumor got more and more that that could be the end, more and more celebrities started committing to coming out. Gary was there with Ross. Um, You know, I saw Gary and Ross there in the hallway. There was, um, you know, any celebrity you can think of almost that was a Springsteen fan was there that night. Um, But of course it was not. They came just in case it was the last show because the rumors had gotten so intense and... um, but of course, well, you know, doing shows um, now, I mean, so it wasn't. Yeah, Paul McCartney. You know, we had him at the building a couple times, and then he was just with us last year at MetLife Stadium, and that happens too. It's some of these artists now. Some of these artists just keep playing it out, as you know, with the farewell tours that never end. But then yeah. someone like a McCartney or a Bruce, you just never know when it when it can end, and when they come in town, and you know. Um, the Rolling Stones, even though they've they've re reimagined themselves too since the passing of their drummer, it's just um, you know some of these leg- legendary acts. And although Taylor Swift's doing what she's doing in the stadiums, there's not Insane. many acts yeah. today who can fill stadiums the way those kind of bands do. So it is it is pretty. Um, you know, a lot of these newer acts they want to stay in the arenas so they don't expose themselves to playing the stadiums. And I've been in some rooms with some artist agent where they're just like we don't want to take on a MetLife or this or that because if they do, they're exposing themselves of, you know, and you got to move 70,000 tickets. I don't care who you are. That's a lot of tickets. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, an, it's an interesting time for entertainment and sports for that matter. We'll talk about that more in a second. Cause I want to ask you a little bit about tickets, but um, let's start in the beginning before we get too far ahead of ourselves. So I was a really great high school hockey player, um, which I was high school. Good. Right. And uh, after, I played a lot of junior roller hockey. I played a lot of competitive roller hockey. And I was interested to hear you got one of your starts was in roller hockey, professional roller hockey at the Meadowlands. Huh? So you kind of go way back to the uh, – we had the Buffalo Wings were the professional roller yeah. hockey team in Buffalo. Yeah. Tell me a little about roller hockey days and kind of start well, we out had, on we the had, we had the We had the New Jersey Rock and Rollers and yes, a very a name. creative name. But yeah, the funny thing is the um the gentleman who owned a team he owned two radio stations here in new jersey a station called wdha and the rat down in south jersey so that's where he had a um so he was using the radio station as a platform and he had a name the team contest so we had these djs every day going hey send it in and the last thing these djs wanted to do was talk about roller hockey but um i was a kid out of school and i you know i was trying to um everyone told me when you um to wait, the the quickest way to make a hundred grand is to get into 
um, pharmaceutical sales or be a stockbroker. So I was in a training program at, at, at Pfizer at the time to try to be a, um, to try to get in, into the medical field. And um, before that, I, I wanted to get into sports management, but it's not what it was today. Today, you can get your master's. All these schools have courses. And um, so I did, you know, I thought I was really creative. I, sold, I sent the baseball with my resume to George Steinbrenner, sent my basketball to the Knicks, all that. And, you know, three days after each of them, I was getting my rejection letters, which I still have today piled up in a, nice. in a box. But um, I had someone who called me and said, you know, there's this hockey team coming to the Meadowlands and they're looking for salespeople. And I'm like, hey, you know, at um, five hours an hour and 10% commission. And by the way, it's roller hockey. I go, what do you mean <laughs> roller hockey? And um, so they're like, they're, <clears throat> they pick up the floor when the devils are done. And so it was a really great experience for me because um, you got to cut your teeth and, and any, any, any kid I talk to looking to break into the industry, I tell them to get into minor league sports because you get to do a lot. And there was an ex ranger, Nick Patiu, who was the who was the um, the head coach, and they bought a lot of um, Jenny Bus, who who runs the Lakers right now. It was the first job her father gave her, and she ran the roller hockey team in L.A. called the L.A. Blades. And there's a lot of influencer people myself excluded of course who kind of got involved in the league which was interesting and uh, a couple people then made the nhl but it was a really good experience our owner ended up then buying an arena football team so he was buying all these minor league conglomerates but um you know every once in a while a couple people who i um was affiliated with there's there's a um there's three kids who are in the nhl right now last name of of hughes Right. And their father Heard was the best team yeah. on the rock and rollers. His name was Jimmy Hughes. Wow. And he offspring three kids. He, he's uh, two of them are on the devils. And one of the, um, his one son is, uh, one of the top 10 players in the league right now, yeah. but it, but yeah. it is funny. Uh, and although I've been lucky to do some self in my career, I, I do look back in those early days where like anything we do in our lives, right. You got to cut your teeth somewhere. And, um, I got in a room with 15 young kids and they were basically like, um, we're going to keep three at full time. But, you know, my mom was like, you're going to make five hours an hour and 10% commission and you're halfway through. But, you know, I was young. She said, if that's what you want to do, you know, you got to do it now. And, you know, she was looking for me to get out of the house. So that held <laughs> that up a couple more years. But, um, um, but yeah, it was a great breeding ground. And anytime you get to get with the right people and there was a gentleman who hired me who, still as a mentor today. And, um, I still got friends who I walked in that room that day who I still, um, are friends with. And a lot of them got out of the business cause they were smarter and got into financial business and things like that. But yeah, um, the roller hockey experience was interesting and, um, you know, it was a great breeding ground for me. That's very cool. And so many people that I've talked to on this show over the years have gotten their start in minor league sports or minor league hockey, you know, Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, I mean, I could go on and on, but you know, guys yeah. who started in, in minor hockey. Your your first big kind of thing—I don't know if I want to say break or whatever—but was uh, we're two days away from the start of of this this version of it, right? The Women's World Cup, and, uh, yeah. and you were a big part of selling tickets, if I got that right, for the nineteen ninety nine World Cup, which is the famous one where uh, Brandy Chastain took her shirt off after she, you know, got the uh, penalty, the game winning penalty against China. Well, I. Well, I joke around. If you look all the way, all the way to the left when she's doing that, you see a young kid, and it, it was me. I was there in my are. late 20s. <laughs> um, you know, I um, so I was in the minor leagues 
stuff. And I, I got a call from a recruiter about the, about the job. It, it, you know, it was FIFA and always respected the game of soccer, played it as a kid. But at the time, I couldn't even tell you how many players there were in the field. The women's game wasn't what it is today. No. It needed uh, this to happen, right? It needed this to yeah, happen. There yeah, there was no WNBA. Yep. There was no, you know, there's a women's league now, obviously. And even the, the um, it's funny, I actually got a call and I, I did a, a, a small interview for a piece for someone who's in college about the 99 Women's World Cup. There's a great documentary called The 99ers on ESPN. Very good. Um, yep. It's kind of like one of those 30 for 30s. And um, so I got the call. I'm I'm in my late 20s. I get flown out to L.A. and, you know, look, I'm doing, you know, project and, you know, you take it on. But I take it on and Giant Stadium was the opening opening venue of the of the of the games. And ironically, it was funny because in sync with a young Justin Timberlake and no one really it was like their platform to play um, had the chance to do the halftime show. So it was like a big deal um for that as well but we played at giant stadium it was on a saturday and i remember going out to la and the organizing committee and fifa and the woman running the, the entire event she just said if if new york doesn't go this whole thing could just go up in smoke because and if the girls if the u.s team doesn't go far we could be in trouble sure. um so next couple of weeks, FIFA's out. And I'll never forget, I'm touring the stadium. And they're like, we're going to tarp the top. We're going to do this. And, you know, I just said, we're not going to tarp it. We're going to fill this thing. If we're the opening games, you know, and I'm kind of getting looks like, hey, young buck, like, cool your jets. And I'm like, so I got the job. And I, what I ended up doing is just figuring out in, in New Jersey at the time, I'm sure it's still there, but the number one youth participating sport is soccer. So I spent the next three months building out an office in in New York. We had a space on 42nd and Lex. It was me and this 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 other woman who hired me at the time. It was two of us that ended up building out the office to 60 by the time we were done. And I literally just got the heads of every soccer organization in the tribe from Connecticut down to South Jersey to New York to Westchester, you name it, and just said, you got to support this event and you got to put a ticket into all your um, – all your registrations for the spring. That didn't get everyone, but I got a lot. Um, needless to say, we had a press conference three days in the city at the Ritz-Carlton. We're in the city, and there's a big press conference. And the media is just killing the girls. Mia Hamm, Julie Fat. they're like, you're lying. This game isn't going to be sold out. I'm like on the side, and the organizing committee's like, are we going to sell? I go, we're going to sell it out. Um, that morning, I'm getting calls from the PR. I go, look. There's literally like 50 tickets left. This event will go not only sell out, it's going to go clean. And it ended up going clean. And that besides was the Denmark game? The de- sorry. The, the, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Besides Giant and Jet Games, yep. it was next to a Rolling Stones concert. It was the most highly attended event at Giant Stadium. I wrote now, down it was 78. It the sporting event. 78, yep. 972 I wrote down for attendance. Yeah. If that's, that's right. exactly right. Yep. And um, so it, it was great. And I remember – you know, you know, like the Clintons were there. I mean, you name it. It was like, and it got really, and it picked up a bunch of steam. And it was the time of year, you know, baseball's in the doldrums of the middle of the season. And I remember the 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 woman of the you know hired me from L.A. She was in. A, she's like, can you come up and see me? She goes, what are you doing the rest of the summer? And I'm like, I, I've just been buried getting these gifts. She's like, well, I want you to go on tour, and I want you because a lot of these other venues didn't pre-sell the game and. The tournament got so hot that, you know, Soldier Field 
Foxborough. They played the semifinals on July 4th at Stanford Stadium. That place holds 85,000 people. Two weeks before the game, they only had half the place sold. And it picked up so much momentum. You know, it's not where we were today with digital tickets and forwarding them. So I had to help get mobile box offices out there with the typical like A to Z. And just it was Ticketmaster was shutting down. I mean, it was such a. Wow. And I remember joking because when the girls won in L.A. at the Rose Bowl, the culmination the next day they got invited to go down main street usa at disneyland and that was the big the last time the girls won four years ago they went to the canyon of heroes like they were the new york yankees down manhattan which is so i joked around i'm like i got invited to the you know disneyland and these these girls but um it just shows you how far it's progressed and it's just amazing the the coverage it's getting and what it means and you know they've tried this women's league a couple times but I really feel like this thing's going to take off after this go around. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've done some pretty cool things in my career where I've been lucky, but I always tell people they, you know, open up Barclays Center for me and Brooklyn will probably be always my cornerstone. But that experience of working for FIFA on the World Cup will probably be the best job I've ever had. Well, it's super, it's super, I mean, a great feather on your cap too, because if you look at the attendance in the three group games they had, I mean, you, yeah. you, you crushed Soldier Field. I think Soldier Field, I know, was one. I think New England was the other. And I think they were well, around. The, 50, the other issue that. you run into with the tournament, as I always joke around, you're only as good as your product, right? Um, and you always want to pre-sell. You know, you didn't get any bad weather. You didn't. But if the girls would have tripped, I think it might have been Soldier. One of either Soldier Field or Foxborough. They were down late in the game. And you kind of had that, like, uh oh, <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. And because it was such a phenomenon. And, uh, but for them, they, they had some comebacks. You know, they had a couple of older players who were on kind of their last legs. Michelle Akers, who was the cornerstone of the defense for years and years, you know, she, it was her last cup. And she was literally playing on one leg during the finals. She got taken out for exhaustion, had to go in the locker room and get, you know, oxygen. Like it was, it was pretty wild. And, um, but you also knew you needed these girls to keep winning to really build it up because it could have been a nice, you know, week or two run. But if you're, you know, and and look, the, the organizing committee was criticized for going to these major stadiums. Like they wanted to go just to like smaller colleges to like go play with 15,000 people so you have a chance. And I give FIFA and, you know, Marla Messing, who was the head of the tournament, uh, who ran everything out of L.A. She's like, nope we're going to stadiums and we're going to do this top notch. And I really do feel it laid the groundwork for what you're going to see over the next couple of weeks and, you know, what everyone's done over the years. Yeah. I mean, they got 90,000 people at the, at the final game. So yeah. obviously they made yeah. the right call. It'll be interesting this yeah. time around because it's in Australia. So it's going to be really yep. tough with game times here. I mean, it's a world event. Yeah. So of course, leave it to the Americans to be like, Oh man, our game is, you know, but I mean, I'm a huge Italian soccer fan, and the, the Italy girls. I don't think they play a game that isn't three thirty in the morning. You know, yeah, the group, yeah. So. Well, I just I feel like they find it, and um, you know, they're going now because you know the the men come in twenty six, yep. and they're going through the final bidding process right now for where the finals will be, and you know, it's it's L A. It's the typical L A. Yep. New York and Dallas because of scope of those stadiums, but. You know, I know someone who works for you, and they kind of said, they're like, Fred, you also got to take into a fact, you know, if you're in L.A., it's three hours off New York, which could be three hours, as you said, three different hours to Italy, to this one, to that one. Sure. But at some point, you pick the best venue, and 
soccer crazies because of what it is. Like they 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 will watch the game and they will figure it out. So it, it is fun when these games come in every four years. And like you said, I, I hope these women get um, the eyeballs and the um, you know you're seeing the support building up. So it should be a lot of fun to watch. Did you get your shot with the nuts kind of off of that? Well, you know, when when that ended, I actually had a couple opportunities in the MLS. You know, obviously the soccer thing made sense. Um, not that I wanted to, you know, I had some some opportunities on the West Coast. Um, and um, I, I didn't take them. I had a couple hockey teams reach out to me. It did give me a platform as a young guy. Um, during the war, as I was preparing for it all, uh, my mother actually passed away of breast cancer at a young age of 48. When I took the job, she just got sick and a little bit into it, she, she unfortunately passed away. And my brother, you know, at the time was still on the East coast, but he was a younger kid. He was 20, 21. And I, again, I had an, I, you know, the real job I was going to take off that. I got a, I had a real opportunity to go work for the Boston Red Sox. And besides being a Yankee fan, fan that I thought I was going to go to hell if I took it. <laughs> I, um, you know, I went up there twice and being a baseball guy, you know, walking on the field and coming out of the green monster, you try to keep your cool, but it, it was an amazing experience, but I ultimately turned it down and I knew I had to stay local. And, um, I got a call from some people I knew at the Nets and said, Hey, what's next? Can you, can you re revitalize our sales team? Can you do this? And I said, Hey, look, um, I think I may have some other things coming up. I'll give you two years and decide from there. And 18 years later, moving to Brooklyn, opening up clubs in the city and, you know, um, getting Russian ownership and, you know, doing business in China and Russia and London, um, the NBA really gave me a chance to see the world. So um, it it was pretty um, uh, amazing. And it's one of those things you never know where the world's going to take you. So um, it was a great run for me. And I obviously I enjoyed my time at the Nets. I, I joke around. I was there five months, maybe, maybe a little more. And they traded for Jason Kidd and I blinked and I was sitting in the finals and we had this ridiculous run. And I'm sitting in LA at Staples watching Shaq and Kobe sweep us in four, but I'm like, this is the greatest job ever. And, you know, uh, but you also got to take it in because we hit the finals next year and then you never sniffed it again in another 15 years I was there. So um, when you do hit that precipice, you know, you really, really got to take advantage and enjoy it because if you're in the industry, you work really hard and there's only one winner at the end of each season. So if you are lucky to do it, you got to enjoy the, the ride that you take. Two nice finals. I mean, you had the Lakers. It was the Shaq Kobe Lakers, and then you had the um, start of the the uh, Spurs run, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, the the Lakers. We just we we were really, you know, we traded for Jason, and it, it was a phenomenal run. But we just had some series where every series, or every series, it was a a fight. And the Lakers, you know, they went they went tooth and nail with the Sacramento Kings at that point. They were really good and. Um, but those guys were just, they were in the middle of their dynasty run. Yep. We were overpowered. And I remember a coach telling me our center was standing behind Shaq and during the game. And we were at the other, you know, our benches on the other side. And I, he told me after the second game, he goes, Fred, I looked at Byron. He was our head coach. He goes, we're in trouble. He goes, no, no, we're playing good. He goes, I can't even see Aaron Williams because Shaq's so big. You can't even see it. Like you couldn't see our center and Aaron Williams was the biggest guy in the team. So, uh, but the next year, you know, our GM Rod Thorne, who was just an amazing basketball mind. He's literally the guy who drafted Michael Jordan. When we got him, he traded Stefan Marbury. He got, and he just knew the pieces. 
He made a couple more moves the following year. We got back to the finals and, you know, look to your point, Spurs, but we played game four at home and um, game five at home and it was tied 2-2 and we had a chance and the ball just, it was one of those nights, the ball just didn't go in and a couple of our top guys didn't perform and we always said like that was the one and then we went to San Antonio in game six and the team was up, they were up 14 at half. And it's like maybe, you know, you got to a game seven, yeah. you never know. And yeah. then game seven. Duncan and David Robinson and Ginobili and Parker, they just turned it on. And um, and then after that, we we won a round or two the following year. But then, you know, Brooklyn was coming. You know, a lot of contracts were up. The team disbanded. You know, we got rid of some key guys. You know, we then went out. They wanted to keep the point guard happy. And, you know, you, then went out, we got Vince Carter, which was unbelievable. And he was, he, and he got us a couple rounds, but we were just never the same. And, you know, if you had talked to any of the guys, they'll always say, you know, business gets in the way and the economics were really hard and we weren't really drawing great in New Jersey. And at the same time, the ownership group was building a building in Brooklyn. So the finances were tough and, you know, you'll hear a lot of players and everyone say, you know, the business gets in the way and um, the team kind of went to, it fell apart and you know uh, we made it to Brooklyn eight years later but um, you know those runs it's it's always about the pieces and having the right people in place and you know Jason Kidd really put the team on the map for future years. You mentioned Barclays is kind of the big thing in your career and it, it kind of came up here while you were with the you know the move from the Meadowlands you know from New Jersey into New York City into Brooklyn. Um, I remember uh, someone from my my family who lived in Brooklyn at the time Italian family like we walked down the street one day. It looked like a spaceship landed in the middle of Brooklyn. He was talking yeah. about Barclays. Um, tell me a little bit about the experience there. And, um, you know, it's your big thing. But, it, I mean, it's been it's been, it's been been crazy. It's been, it, the effect has been crazy because you think about how it's affected Madison Square Garden, how expensive Madison Square Garden can be. Okay, forget the garden. We'll go to Barclays. You know, people, things that are yeah. interested at the garden, they're at Barclays. Now, it's really kind of changed New York City and events in New York City and sports in New York City. It's really a bigger deal than people give it credit for, probably. Yeah, no, you know, they always say if, if you know, Brooklyn was its own, you know, it could be its own state, it's so big. It's bigger and, than um, Philly, right? I mean, it's, I think yeah, Brooklyn is bigger than yeah. Philly. Yeah. And, um, you know, look, I'm, a, I'm, a, I, I'm born and raised in New Jersey. So for me, personally, I'm like, you know, I can't believe the Nets are leaving. And um, it's funny, my boss at the time, when we, you know, we, we didn't change the name, which we could have. We didn't because we knew Brooklyn was a brand in its own. So it didn't, it, it, there was no disrespect to the Nets, but you could have called it anything. It was about Brooklyn. And there was a gentleman who was a real estate mogul who was out in um, a real estate developer by the name of Bruce Ratner. He bought the team and said, I want to move it to Brooklyn. I'll never forget it. it the news broke just instantly. And my boss called me up. He's like, Hey, I, I just want to give you a heads up. And um, it was funny. I think I was, in Brooklyn once in my life that weekend I got in my car and I just drove there and it was just dirt. I mean, I'm thinking like the arena is going to be up the next day. It was <laughs> eight years and 27 lawsuits because the neighborhood itself didn't want the building right. in the beginning. Yeah. But um, when they realized what it meant and, you know, so it, it was a long journey to get there. You know, we wow, went out and years, we sold, huh? yeah, wow. we sold. And at the same time we were still running the nets in Jersey and then in between that, the, the Meadowlands was going to shut down. And then we ended up going to Prudential Center for two years and playing there in between. So people used to say to me, you're going to move this team not once but twice. And we right. were like, yeah, that's, you know, when you're in Newark, one you time. know, 
So we went, yeah, we went to Newark. We thought we could show off the product a little bit more, but the team wasn't that good. We just traded for Darren Williams, who kind of at the time didn't want to be there. So we were really in flux. The fan base was in flux. um, So I kind of said to myself, look, when you get in this industry, uh, you're hoping to, you know, win a ring, open a building and provide for your family. And, you know, as I always joke around, the Nets gave me two out of three and the only the only ring I wear is my wedding one. And depending on the day, my wife will say if I should keep it on or off. So, you know, I, I didn't get any other rings, but it's a bad joke. I always, I like I always tell kids who are trying to get yeah. in the agency in the industry. But um, so we went and um, we went through a transition of and um, part of the ownership group. I'm sure, you know, Jay-Z got involved. And although people thought there was always an office that said Sean Carter in our facilities, you know, he really did get involved and he, um, you know, we had meetings with him with the logo and, you know, originally we were going to kind of feed off like how the Nets began in Long Island because Long Island and Brooklyn are actually, if you look at the map, they actually touch each other. So there was this historical of going from Long Island, then it went to Rutgers for a little bit, then it went to East Rutherford for all these years, then it went back to Brooklyn. So we were going to do the roots of the ABA and we ran everything past Jay. You know, there's no better brand, Stewart. And you sure. sit in a room with a man like that, and the stuff that he says is just down to – we were showing him the utensils from clubs, and he would tell us, I don't care if you're just serving hot dogs and whatever. Like, you know, people take – you know, if it's heavy, people take that as classy. People take it as, you know, feeling that it's authentic. And, you know, down to the – so he called us one day, and he called me and – a bunch of people into his office, my boss, and he goes, I got a brand new idea. And his brand guys just flip everything over and they put everything into black and white. And um, the whole dynamic changed. And the the issue was, if you looked at, you know, um, merchandising numbers from around the league, at that point, the Spurs, maybe one of the, but every team wanted to use black because black is always the number one selling jersey as a third jersey. Right. And the league, a couple years before, said that they didn't want to um they didn't want any more teams using black jerseys because everyone was going to do it and they had to stop it so we put in we got denied we put in we so my boss calls a commissioner at one point and he's like hey can you do me a favor jay is really all over this black jersey thing because he feels like brooklyn it ties in with the subways like we had little like um herringbone um, features on the jersey and the floor that matched the subway. So we had this whole subway Brooklyn, and, you know, it's funny. Commissioner Silver says to my boss, he goes, so you want me to tell Jay-Z he can't have a black jersey? We're like, yeah. And he's like, okay. So we all saw how that conversation went. Um, <laughs> we announced That's we right. were having black yeah. jerseys, but it's all about using your resources. So, um, so you know, Jay got involved. We opened up the building. And he opens up with eight shows. I mean, everything um, – so we finally got to the to the goal line, and to your point, like when it did open up, it became such a phenomenon. Changed the game, yeah. The building, yeah, yeah the about the building being different, yep. the the experience, the subway. I mean, there's literally 16 subway lines that go to the foot of the building. And um, look, our ownership group was really bold, probably a little too bold. Um, they were like, "We're going to turn Knicks fans into Net fans." We took billboards out outside of Madison Square Garden. I mean, we wanted to punch the bully. <laughs> And they weren't, and you realize quickly too, you know, we did realize like, look, you got to look yourself in the mirror and we had to be the Nets and right. we had to build outside the borough. The Knicks will always be the Knicks. The Knicks and they will, yeah. Yeah. you know, and 
when I tell you we, we fought tooth and nail to try to, but, you know, and look for myself who really worked on this brand, even though I've been gone from the organization for six years, when I do see the black and white, you know, we did say, look, we wanted to be a, um, an iconic brand. You know, we wanted to be a cultural brand. We wanted people to wear a Brooklyn Nets hat like they would the Yankees. And you want to see it wherever. And look, when you travel around, you see a lot of Nets gear. People think it's cool. And we wanted to really be cool, hip, and we wanted the players to be good. And we wanted you to be tied in that you love the team. But we thought we had a really opportunity to be cultural with it and people wearing the jerseys. And um, and we did. And then, you know, the team, the team made a bold move second year and gave up a lot and we went for the you know to get Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and the guys in in Boston and yeah Jason I mean you had our starting five the second year was Paul Pierce Joe Johnson Darren Williams Brooke Lopez and Kevin Garnett and you're like oh my we're on the cover of Sports yep, Illustrated here we go yep here we go best building with the best five but as you've seen a lot of these super teams haven't worked and um so that dismantled quick. And although they tried it again with the Katie Kyrie thing and you saw it didn't work again, you know, I'm hoping they get it right this time. You know, Sean Marks, who's the general manager of the team, he's just one of the brilliant minds in the game. He was under Popovich for years in San Antonio. So he knows how to build it the right way. But, um, you know, you mentioned before, you know, then besides just the basketball side, you, you know, you then, you then got into the, you know, the entertainment fabric and can an artist play three, three buildings all at once, you know, do they want to go to all three buildings? So, you know, we had a lot of competition of trying, you know, every artist wants to play the garden. You make less money there. You know, the union fees are different. Like, yeah, I could give you 50 reasons why, but, but it's the garden. It's the garden. Yeah. They want to play the garden. And, you know, there's, there's times where, um, you know, there's, you know, we, we would beat them and we get a couple artists, but like I said, there's at the end of the day, um, people, people want to, you know, they want to play the garden and, you know, we, so, and that still goes on, you know, it's crazy. Now you got the UBS arena out in Long Island and, you know, there's, there's there's four four major arenas. And so it's tough when artists now what they're doing, they're breaking it up, you know, you and I were chatting, you know, about Bruce in the beginning. Right, so beginning of the tour, we'll play. Of the tour. Now, yeah. Yeah, now Bruce could play every, but instead of, but if you break it up and you're not playing four venues in a week and a half, you're going to get a lot of people who come the first time and then come the second time again. And It shows off the building. I remember we had Bruce our second year and it was one of the biggest nights of food and beverage and beer. You know, I joked around being a Jersey guy. I go, you're just going to get a different demo in here because and it had a chance to show off the building. And then we were able to market to New Jersey people that it's not that hard to get out there and right. get more people to Nets games. So um, the competition stuff has always been tough, you know, and then you put COVID on top of it, it's made it even tougher. And, you know, everything's been getting back, but the, you know, the entertainment side of the business, I really learned a lot from because, um, you know, um, being able to get an artist to say, I want to come back here. And, you know, Bruce came and we did a pictorial book that we gave him as a gift that his manager said to the guy who's really close, who he's like, you know, he, he has that book in his office and he doesn't keep many things because he gets everything from everywhere. And right. That's awesome. we were, we, yeah, we were just like, how can we be different and not just give everyone a Jersey with their name on it? You know, um, 
Barbara Streisand played, she was the second act in the building because she grew up in Brooklyn and she was, she hadn't played out in 12 years. Wow. And we said, you have to play the venue. So she played it when our team spoke with her and booked it. She had like a, a model, uh, she had some like dog house that she had for her dog where it's literally a miniature house that her dog lived in and we replicated it and had it in her in her dressing room when she got there. And she was sick. just like Yeah, that's sick. you know, so we were just nice. trying to do yeah. everything different when you're the new game in town and you know, you and I were talking about wrestling a little bit. We we had SummerSlam come in and instead of doing all that, we, you know, Stephanie and Triple H just had kids and when they got to their hotel room we had next jerseys for all the kids waiting and we knew Vince McMahon was a big ACDC fan and we got a guitar signed by the band for him. And that man could get anything. Right. And like he was like floored by it, you know? So it's all the little touches. And, and to get the McMahons out of the garden, that's a big deal. I mean, Vince's well, grandfather yeah, ran the garden. It's funny to say that yeah. we, you know, it's recently been blown up, but we did, you know, I, I always talk about people want to probably my, my biggest, um, wins at, at, at Brooklyn. We, um, the Meadowlands was just about to shut down. We were open for a year and their last event was going to be SummerSlam at, at the old Brendan Byrne and the governor, because the building was just, he decided to shut it down early and it just hit me. I called a couple people at the building. And I go, where's SummerSlam going? They're like, I think it's going to go out to bid. They may bring it to Staples. So Fast forward a little bit, we all start calling and, you know, the guy who books it says, we're going to do an RFP. We're going to let Prudential, Staples, and you guys come to Connecticut and do a pitch. Oh, nice. And um, we end up going up there and we walked out of the, and I knew the other guys at the building, they just got a call. McMahon's like, don't even have those other people come up. We'll, we'll, We'll go to Brooklyn. So that's when they started the NXT. They did, it's a whole weekend. It is really amazing, but- we did all that for Vince and Stephanie and the main guy who did it grabbed me. You know, we did a presentation in the Nets locker room. We, we just went all out and the main guy for Vince grabbed me and he goes, you have the big guy's attention. He's willing to do a three-year commitment to this building wow. and only play your building. Wow. So we had all the Monday nights we had. Right. So as, as the new guard came into Brooklyn and we all left, they, you know, they opened up their portfolio a little bit more. So they are back to the garden, but we got them to commit for a good three years of just playing Brooklyn. And then they would play Jersey and that was it. So we kind of owned WWE for a short period of time. All right. Two very important Brooklyn questions. Then we'll do a little Jets and I'll let you go. I don't want to keep you too long. First, very important Brooklyn question. Do you have Jay-Z in your phone? I don't. I have his assistant, okay. but I, I don't have. You know, I talk about. I have his email. So who's the um, who's the I'm biggest never... guy in your phone? Then you think because that's a game, right? Because I for me, I always say Joe Buck. That's my answer for that because I'm blessed to have Joe Buck. But like, I would say if you would add Jay, that you win every game pretty much. Who would you? Yeah, have? no, yeah. I'm not there, and it, it may depend probably for me, and it's just because I, I think the world and probably Jay, Jason Kidd. Okay, that's a good one. Um, you know, I still that's a damn text good with one. him a lot. Yeah. I, I got a lot of former players in there. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, I also have Zach Wilson, but he went down there <laughs> poor Zach, the yeah. pretty quick, yeah, yeah, but a great Zach. guy. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of coaches, you know, things of that. But, um, yeah, never had Jay. How does it say? I have his email. I always joke around the night before we launched the logo. He emailed me directly and said, you know, I've been looking at this, and I think the font's just a little Oh can we bring the font down <laughs> before and 
And like, we just made 5 million jerseys that are about to get launched when he hits on the stage. And I'm like, Jay, we could look into this, but this initial launch, he goes, and when I tell you, I was shaking. Like, I I didn't even, you know, and um, he wrote back, he goes, makes total sense. He goes, let's, let's look at this after the first round of merchandising goes. I'm like, oh, I mean, everyone was on pins and needles because he, even Adidas, you know, these top brands see him walk in a room and they're like, oh my gosh. And we joke around because when we launched, we knew we were going to launch the jerseys when he had the first show. So they leaked a little bit, but no one saw him. We had NBA.com ready that they were going to go on sale that night. So he just said, I'm going to do it during my concert, but didn't tell us when. So we're thinking, is it an encore? Is he going to sing one of his Brooklyn songs? And the lights go down for the first time in Barclays. And he's like yelling, I'm home or something. And he walks out and he's wearing a jersey. We're like, oh, that was it. That and is, we're all yeah. scrambling. We're yeah. not even enjoying the moment. We're going online. We're, I'm, I'm on the phone with the league, like in a bathroom because I can't hear. Um, and even the team store in the building all had black you know, um, covers on it. And they took them all down. And then we were like, and everyone's like, you guys are brilliant. Because then he played, he plays a festival down in Philly every year, Made in America. Right, Made in America, And yeah. he wore the jersey and hat, like, like you know, um, the next couple weeks when he was down. I'm like, if you think and we can Labor tell that's Labor Day, I think, right? Made in America? Yeah. Yeah, Labor Day. Yeah. Yeah. And we, everyone's like, he's wearing that hat all over the place. I go, he does what he wants to do. Yeah. Now, Adidas made him a special Brooklyn hat. The guy wore it for a year, and it gave us such credibility. I but. Bet. He did it because he thought it was cool. Right. If he didn't think it was cool, he'd throw it in the garbage and say thanks, but no thanks. So, all right, let's get to the end. back to your question. Yeah, I don't have Jay Z, but I, I, I would cool. think Jason Kidd for me personally is probably my biggest name in my phone. So, all right, let's get to the important, the important part of this interview right here. All right, I want to take you back to October eighteenth, October nineteenth, two thousand thirteen, and I want you to tell me everything you can about the arrival and the performance of the Mighty Pearl Jam at Barclays. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Our programming guys, I got to learn the business. I um, Certain acts would come through, and I, I'd get the list of what they were working on and any on sales. And um, Pearl Jam actually was here, and they didn't do the garden during that run. Nope. And um, they were doing some one-off stuff, and they're like, I think we can get it. And um, one of the guys knew Pearl Jam's manager's daughter and got a meeting. And um, I would sit in some of those meetings sometimes. And it was funny. He goes, I'm seeing him in the city on Tuesday. I was like, I will be there. And um, so I just sat in the back and they went through it. And he's like, you know, and there, there's a lot of, you know, there was some stuff with, I'll just say, the Garden Brass and, you know, the where they didn't really like them not playing the Garden. And look, they've always been very vocal of what the Gardens meant. Right, because they had played so, there in 98, let me think, 98, two. 2003, um, yep. 2008, and 2010. Yeah. Besides when they did the Randall's Island. That was 96. Yeah. And, and then in 2000, they, were, they did Jones Beach. Yeah, I was going to say, they yep. were doing the Jones Beach thing. They that did was PNC summer 2000. Once, yep. But they, um, so they did the show, and, you know, not everyone in my camp, they'd laugh because, you know, the, the old guy in the room, I'm like, this ticket will sell out in two minutes, you know, and everyone's like, really? I'm like, yeah. So they, they, they're like, if you get another one, we'll do two shows. And they do the shows. They, I mean, the shows were just probably one of the, and one of the, everyone kind of knew it was like the running, even when I left, 
they gave me a go away cake with the Pearl Jam announcement as the cake um, when I left Brooklyn. And um, the some of the operations guys, they literally pulled the set list off the stage for me that night and gave it to me that he writes out every night and puts on the stage. And um, I'm, ne- I'm never one of those guys. I'm usually lucky. Our head of PR grabbed me as the show's about to begin because for every concert, the media is allowed to sit in a pit for the first two songs. Yeah, as I say, a few songs in the beginning, yeah. And uh, the girl grabs my badge and throws me in there. She goes, sit in there. And they come out, they do release. I mean, it was, I got a picture of Eddie. It looks like he's standing like right next to me with a bottle of wine in. But those shows were amazing. And our owner of the building ended up meeting with them after. And he took a pro- some proceeds of the event that night. That would have been our proceeds. And donated it back to their charity. And they were kind of like, they were hooked. Um, fast forward, it's like four years later, two years later, they're, they're coming around again. And the guy's like, we, we have them again. Like, great. Now, these shows, I mean, people were right. People are like, they love the acoustics. They love. And um, the show's going to go on sale in a week. And I get a call from my box office guy. And he goes, I got bad news. I go, what's the matter? He goes, Pearl Jim just got pulled. I go, what do you mean he got pulled? He goes, well, there's some rumors that the garden found out they were coming back here again and they kind of used their leverage about yeah, long that was term probably things. 16. That's probably 2016. Yeah. Yep. And they've they've never been back. Wow. And um, so it, it's it's interesting the way, you know, you bring up Bruce. So Pearl Jam held the record because they don't you know, they don't need a stage. They don't have, you know, fireworks, all this. So yep. they open up the back and I'm in the box office after our first Bruce show. The second, the second year, and and my box office guy goes, "Huh, Bruce almost got your boys." You know, they were forty seats away from breaking the all time record, and one of Bruce's guys in the arena is in the box office. He goes, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Pearl Jam's got the record for the attendance for a concert," and Bruce does the same thing. He doesn't have so the next day, the guy released like fifty more. Fifty tickets. more. So, <laughs> yeah. So we so we literally went out and and did a press release that Bruce had the most. And I, I looked at the guy. I'm like, "You had to open your mouth." All right you know? now, so, let me ask you this. This is maybe a little inside baseball, but I'm curious. What is it like working with them in terms of the ten club? Because they are unique, or, or or you know maybe not exclusively unique, but one of the few. I don't know how many. That reserve yeah. a large portion of the tickets to be sold separately. To well, the when fan an club. artist comes in the building, yeah. not everyone knows this, but the building only has the rights to a certain amount of seats. You kind of do that in the contract. So the artist always really has the rights to do whatever they want with it. Um, okay. You can talk to them, and like we used to do pre sales for, you can negotiate ahead of time, hey, we're going to do pre sales for our ticket holders or this or that. And you could kind of negotiate and, and, and look to get more inventory, but you knew coming in, that inventory was carved out. You know, Billy Joel's always known that he takes the first two rows. Right, and finds people And he, he's got his people to go yep. in. And, you know, a lot of artists do um, interesting things. But we knew ahead of time. And, look, the artists, you know, they, they, they literally rent the building from you. And, you know, you get, you get the food and beverage or you get parking, you get that. And the ticket stuff gets split up. So you knew going in. But you, you saw the inventory right away. And I knew, you know, it's at fan club hold. So it was that. And, you know, but... You know, Pearl Jam's got a little bit, even back then, as much as the, I mean, they were selling tickets for that show, 70, 100 bucks. And, you know, they're going for like a thousand bucks in the secondary. And like the, the average person in our building is like, what's going on? I'm like, that's what these guys do. And, you know, we were trying to get them to hold. And, but to their credit, 
they can make so much, you know, they, they don't want the fans to get fleeced, but you know, they were getting some, some artists and, and some promoters, they do ask for reports and they, they want to know what's going on in the secondary and they keep eyes on it. You know, they'll have people making sure the building's not putting their tickets on the secondary to make more money. And, you know, Pearl Jam has a lot of eyeballs looking out. They really, really, and, and we dealt with a lot of promoters who just look the other way and they're like, just sell the tickets. We don't care who has them. Right. Um, but it was a hot, hot ticket. And our, it was our, it was funny. And our owner didn't know anything about Pearl Jam coming in and, it would become a running joke because every time our our promoters would present them with, you know, the pipeline of what who's touring, you know, it was always, um, you know, what about Pearl Jam? What about Pearl Jam? And yeah. it, again, they, they had such a, you know, that year the Rolling Stones played the building. They wanted to do it. They did a live broadcast on MTV, which was still a thing at the time. We did a New Year's show with Coldplay and Jay-Z. We curated a show that no one ever did. I mean, so you get a chance to be very creative when you open up a building and, you know, we took it, we had the MTV music awards, you know, so um, it's pretty wild. You know, the gentleman who do a lot of our booking is now running the Prudential center and he does an amazing job out there too. So, well, it's interesting too, about that 2013 tour. That was the first year that they opened the front back up to GA since the, yeah. the tragedy in Denmark in 2000. Yeah. So that was, I'm sure nervous times for them. They were, you know, to do GA like that. So I wonder what they're like, but let's talk about, this is the last thing we'll do a minute on the jets and I'll let you go. I promise. Let's talk about tickets real quick because obviously Pearl Jam in the nineties saw this coming, right? And they did their best to try to rally support to, to prevent what we're seeing with Ticketmaster now. And nobody, not even Neil Young wanted to back them. A lot of people mocked yeah. them. You know, the, the, the thing at Congress was a joke. I mean, the, the congressmen were more interested in getting autographs for their grandchildren than talking to Pearl Jam about the problems with Ticketmaster. And um, now you fast forward to now, and I just seen the uh, updated Polestar numbers. Um, and Pearl Jam, I think, is 76th. And they could be way higher, but they charge way less than everyone historically. Yeah. And they don't play enough shows. But, you know, per ticket sold, they're, I think, like 30 30 spots higher than they are revenue because they don't charge as much. Um, but You're now you, you look yeah. at, you look at the last tour um, and it, we saw it with Taylor Swift and we saw Bruce Springsteen, his fan club quit over this dynamic pricing stuff. And yeah. you yeah. know, the monopoly that we have, you know, how the Congress let live nation and Ticketmaster merge is beyond me. Um, but what do you think about the landscape with tickets and bots that buy them and, you know this. Um, yeah, no, it's got the pricing and, and, with the the airplane pricing and all that. What, what do you What do you? Yeah, see? no, I've been brutally honest with people. You know, I, I don't know how an average fan gets a ticket anymore. No, to your point, yeah. like they can get them. And look, I see somebody, you know, especially the Taylor Swift stuff. You know, locally, you know, she played two shows here in New York. Um, you couldn't get near a ticket. Everyone, I mean, the amount of celebrities who were at the shows, they're getting someone to get them right, like someone. It, it is amazing what happens within the industry. And even there are tours right now where they actually price the tickets on market. So they're going to, they're going to charge you more for a ticket in New York than they are. They're going to charge you right. in Tampa yep. um, to your point. It's the airline model. And, and look, I did a lot of that in my time in the business. I did that. I did that in football. I mean, you mentioned the jets, like when, you know, if the Buffalo bills are coming into playing the jets, that, that ticket's going to be a lot more expensive than if the Falcons are coming in or, sure. or the, or the Carolina Panthers. And it's just on demand and everyone has gotten a lot smarter. Everyone's got analytics people. 
I mean, when I was at the Jets, I had three analytics people looking at the pricing every day, which shoot me reports. This game's up, this game's down, the, the aisle seats this, the inner seats that. And, um, but, and, and, and then the concert business picked up on it. I mean, the concert business really followed what the sports industry has been doing for years. It's just sports industry. There's so much tonnage because in an NBA or in a, a NHL season, you're playing 41 games. Right. I know there's only 10 in the NFL, but you know, there's baseball. so many games, yeah. but if you know, one act is coming in again, you get Pearl Jam credit. Pearl Jam's like, they don't really play stadiums unless it's festivals. Now they could come in and play a MetLife stadium in New York and not worry about playing the garden five nights or three nights. Yeah. But they know what their atmosphere is. They know what people will get for their value. They don't want someone who's three miles away in the, you know, in the um, upper level where it looks like the rancher you're just paying to watch on scoreboard. Um, so the, the ticketing industry has just advanced so much and people would just put it up for sale and go away. Now it's like, okay, I mean, how much money can I make off it? I mean, you see, even every time the NBA finals are up, I mean, and a lot of these teams and arenas and stadiums, they'll hold some of the tickets where they'll go on sale to get rid of everything. And then, social media and what's going on and people raving about it even adults you know i kept joking around my 50 year old wife is like you're gonna get me a ticket for that right not just my you know i'm like what i'm like you want to go and um so it's pretty amazing but yeah the industry as a whole sports you know entertainment and now the promoters you know the promoters used to kind of set it and forget it but now they're looking how can we raise prices what can we do what you know can we get more for this and you know they're looking to really walk out of there with with more money and it's not just about selling more beer popcorn or merch um it all starts with the tickets so it's gotten very interesting but the bot thing is real too and you know what a lot of what a lot of these broker scalpers and sites also do is they'll you know they'll have seats on sale on a stub hub before it goes on sale because they know they're going to get access to it now they may not be able to tell you you're in section fives row eight seat one and two but they may say you're in section five and i'm gonna get you somewhere in there and if the seat's 100 bucks if you're willing to give me 400 now i'll guarantee you get it and look i hate to say it if it's for your kid you're gonna do it right you know and um that's why i've told people too i feel like the season ticket besides for these bigger brand teams i feel like the season tickets slowly going away because Everyone has access to any event you want right now. I mean, if you look at the Super Bowl before the ball gets kicked off, there's tickets still for sale, no matter who's playing. Now, it depends what price you want to pay. And I always used to joke around with all my sales staff. It's not so much the money when you're trying to sell season tickets. It's you're, you're looking for people's time commitment. Like you said, the Nets, I'm like, it's 44 nights with preseason. Yeah. You know, most of us don't know what we're doing for dinner on Friday night, let alone committing to 44. Plus the playoffs, yeah. you know, those early years we talked about at the Nets. I remember 16 nights the, there, yeah. the following year when we didn't get to the finals, you know, I had guys telling me, you know what? I took that finals money. I took my family to Hawaii. I took my, I put a new roof on my home, sure. you know, during COVID. Yeah. I remember telling ownership at the Jets when we got out of it. I go, you guys got to remember, you know, if we had a bad game, instead of trudging to, to a stadium and sitting outside and tailgating, if our game was bad, they took the remote and they put the red zone on and they just changed the channel. And then I had real customers tell me, you know what? I watched the game. It wasn't good, but I could have Sunday pasta with my family instead of 
getting home at seven thirty and an hour and a half out of Traffic, it. Traffic, so, yeah, all that shit. Yeah, yeah. so it, although it's all about the experience, it's also about people's time. And, um, you know, I think people would rather go into a couple days or nights and pay more than, you know, and that's why back to your Ticketmaster thing, you know, Pearl Jam, not because I'm a fan, but back in the day, you know, I was watching it, but I, I, I didn't really pay. But they were right about the Ticketmaster yeah, stuff. And yeah. they were right. And, Look, I do think I don't know anything else. I, I I do think at some point the Ticketmaster Live Nation thing does have to break up. I think it'll. Just, I actually think it would help both their businesses because people. I've been a, I've been in a room for both sides, and I've been asked a lot of questions. And you know, I've never been in a room where everyone said, you know, do this, do that, or you won't get this, even from a building perspective. Or when I was at MetLife with, you know, I used to deal with the gentleman who runs that building a lot from um, our third party events. But, um, you know, it does become real. And I think it keeps every look, there's the seat geeks and the stub hubs. There's, there's some people making their way in the ticket industry. And I do feel you'll see in the next few years, more of these other ticket providers will get involved. I've personally done four major deals with Ticketmaster in my career, and I am a fan of theirs. But I do think the experience, you know, it, it's clunky, you know, it's, um, there's some user-friendly things you can do. And right now it's search optimization. They got to chill with the fees too. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Well, the fees, you know, they bundle them. The Cure, you know. the Cure, the Cure wanted yep. to do $30 tickets and they, they did, they got it. They got the $30 tickets. Then they found out when the tickets went on sale, the Ticketmaster was charging fees more than the face value of the yeah. ticket. Than the ticket. Yeah. 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 And the cure ended up having one of their, you know, and, and look, you get, you get caught up in the moment, you know, if you're online, like all of a sudden, usually kind of complain about the fees after the fact, but if you just got the ticket in your end, you're just like, whatever, I'm going to yeah, treat myself. Buy it but now, yeah. At the end of the day, take a step back, you know, thousands of thousands of events a night times three bucks times this times that. And a lot of times Ticketmaster will say to the venue, you know, whether I was at MetLife or I was at Barclays, hey, you want to make more money? You know, raise the fees. If you sold ha half a million dollars in tickets, if you raise it a buck, you just made another half a million dollars. Right. It seems like no big deal, but it hits the bottom line. And then it's 20 bucks to park and it's five hours for a hot dog. And, you know, my, my wife has always said to me, I've been lucky enough to take my kids and family to whatever event. And she's always like, what's an average family do to afford this who can't just call someone to buy tickets from like it's um it's hard it's hard and that's why but the industry has to watch and you and i hit on it a little bit like th those kids and young people picking up the phone to watch you know nine times out of ten when i take my teenage son i'm like you want to go see a net game or this game i'll be like yeah whatever He's not overly enthused right. to go because they're yeah. like, I'll just watch it on TV. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. And look at so the TVs they gotta watch we have that. now. Compared to the TVs well, we had when we were kids, they were big, giant pieces of furniture. You know, I have a 70-inch TV in my living room now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I would joke around the NFL. I'm like, we got to stop having Peyton Manning tell everyone to get direct TV and watch these games in your man cave. Yeah. We're basically saying it's a better experience staying than at home, home than trudging yeah. through the game. Yep. And I always wanted to change the dynamic. Uh, you wanted to get away of like me and you going to the game and drinking our faces off for five hours in the parking lot and rolling in blitz. I'm like, we got to make this a family environment. We got to make it about traditions and family because I, I well, before I worked at the Jets, I took my kid to a, but I would take him to a preseason game because it was mellow. Right. I would always yep. be like, I can't take him to a Jet Dolphin game. What? Forget about if there's fights or this. What he's going to hear about people's language is more than he's going to hear in a lifetime. 
Yeah. No. So, you know, there's some of that too. It's tough you know, here it's too with the, the Bills Mafia and, and people going through yep. tables. It is here. The tradition is spending five hours in the park and getting blitzed. You know what I mean? That's what they do here. Um, yeah. yeah. The sportscaster here with uh, Fred Mangione. He was the CEO for Brooklyn Nets and spent five years with the Jets. Two quick Jets questions. I know we've gone too long, so I'll let you go quickly, but. I got to ask you about Hard Knocks and what your thoughts are because you've been with the organization. Um, you spent five years there, and Hard Knocks is apparently very important to the NFL because if it wasn't, it wouldn't happen this year because nobody wanted to do it, and the Jets have been forced, and they're not happy about it. Um, I heard also from Adam Schefter today uh, that it's gonna the show's on, but it's going to be much different, that the access they've had in the past isn't going to be the same. The Jets feel it's inhumane. Uh, to broadcast people being cut. They don't have a problem cutting people, but, you know, it's inhumane apparently to tape it. But um, do you have any thoughts about that, working for the Jets for so long and, and maybe why yeah, look, this I, has um, happened? Do you th- any, any insider opinion or thoughts on it? Yeah, I was at the Jets for six years. I left last year. I left last July. And even then, we were up and we were having some meetings about hard knocks coming in. No coach wants it, no matter what they say. Right. So we'll start there. No coach wants it. Um, Except maybe Rex Ryan. After, Rex Ryan may yeah, have. Yeah. He may have. Uh, and, and look, he yeah. was. You know, he was a marketer. Right. I always say I would have loved to have been with the club when he was there because sure. he worried about selling tickets and sponsorships and you know. But um, Coach Sala is a great guy, and he he he's very. We keep everything in house. Like we would know things that were going on way before it even hit the mark. And, and, and sometimes I felt like it was a little bit of a test, almost like let's see who's in this foxhole with us. But last year. Right. Um, there was some pressure to do it. And because, you know, Joe Douglas, the GM of the team, is just an amazing man. He he just sees what's ahead before you. And the draft we had last year just knew. And, and I think the league knew and guys like Sauce Gardner and some and of these, Hall, like yeah. yep. Garrett Wilson, and even though they're out there saying they don't want it, I bet you those guys want it because they're brand guys. Right. You, know, you know, Sauce Gardner's playing Twitch with kids and he's like, so... They will maximize this. The other thing, too, the Jets do a, their own version. We had our own version called One Jets Drive, which we still have. If you watch it, it's off the charts. The production is incredible. Now, it's just about the journey getting to the season. Never put the players or the cuts. And, you know, it's funny. I heard a local radio broadcaster say, Tiki Barber, who was a giant, yeah, said, WFN. when when – the Hard Knock series came out in the beginning when a guy got cut and it showed that it was like, oh, my God, not to say it's watered down. But he also said, you know, the Jets aren't wrong for taking a stance like you're taking some kid's dream. And even though it may be and, and you're just crushing it and the whole world's seeing. So, um, look, there's been a lot of chatter like they're only going to give them the minimum. They're only and, and look, I think if, you know. And, and they, you know, they did call and say we don't want it. And right. I know it, they, but they didn't have there, at the hot. there was, but but yeah. but you know what? Um, the league does make the final call, yep. and um, they were one of the teams. You know whether, yep. they were yeah. So whether yep. Aaron or those guys, look, I'm not there anymore, so I'm not sure. But um, you know, look, there is a distraction. There's enough going on, and you know, look, they. But you know, one, you're in New York. One, you just got an all. Uh, you got a Hall of Fame quarterback who's yep. getting deemed to save the world for you. They're playing in a Hall of Fame game, which is the first preseason game. I mean, they got a game in like two weeks. Yeah. You know, so training camp starts for them 
tomorrow. You know, this is getting yeah, rookies you know, tomorrow. Yeah, rookies tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that they're the earliest because it starts, and I think it's like next Saturday or whatever. It's really early. It's the first weekend of August, and um, so it's tough. I, I look. I'm a marketing and branding guy, so I, I, I'd love it. You know, but you know, look, you got to protect the product. And look, right now it's all about keeping the guy under center happy. And he was just at a golf event this weekend saying they didn't want it. And I still keep in touch with some people there, obviously. And they're like, we'll figure it out. And they'll be, and it has nothing to do with NFL, HBO films or anything. They didn't make a call, you know, but yeah. um, there's a lot of other storylines. You know, I think the, the Saints were still up. There's a big yeah. thing with Derek Carr going there. Obviously, everything that's going on with Washington, I think you'll see them be the next guys up once their ownership situation gets put away. But, um, you know, it's hard. And I also feel like so many of these teams are also doing their own things. If you look what the Jets do on their website right, right now, you'd yep. be like, this their is hard not. media teams and all that. Yep. Yeah, and yep. the problem is, you know, look, you go in and you sit with football operations before every year. You're like, here's the events we want. Here's the access we want. Here's what – and if you do it the right way, you usually get more – and if you don't force it, look, I've worked for teams where they just give you the Heisman. They're like, we're only doing the minimum. We know you guys need to sell. And I've also worked for some bad Nets teams where the GM would call me and be like, Freddie, we know we're killing you right now. Is there anything else I can do with events? Or, you know, I'd be like, can you give me non-dress guys and let me walk them into a couple sponsor suites? Can we, you know, just to create some more value for the people who are spending the money and give them some extra access. But I'm sure at the end of the day, the, the Jets will do right by HBO and vice versa. But, um, you know, the cut thing I know has been uh, – that's been talked about in the league the last couple of years to begin with. So I think that's going to be a thing where going forward, probably both sides eliminated anyway. But um, I still like the show. I think they – you know, I know they, they the did show. an in-season yeah. – Yeah, they did an in-season one last year. You know, it gets you hyped up for the season. especially. And, look, I, I've always been a Jet fan. So when Rex and those guys did it and, you know – you know, they had a bunch of storylines that year because Revis wasn't re-signed and they re-signed him during the show when he walks onto the field and everyone thought it was set up, which it wasn't. And, um, pretzel you know, so... M&Ms, pretzel M&Ms. Yeah, yeah. Movie. And, you know, and <laughs> Let's get a snack. Let's get a snack. Yeah. Listen, uh, I think the show is a great show and I think they'll figure it out. And also, I, I think they're making a big, too big of a deal about the cut thing. Like, does anyone really care that much about seeing the guy cut? I mean, it's you'll you get the story because they like to hone in on those guys who are in the fringe, right? Uh, and they find that guy. Is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it? I mean, so you'll interview him on the way walking out instead of inside the room. What's yeah, I, I, I yeah, I think the other thing, too, is – and look, they all get – And they, um, the, in the room, they just say the generic thing like, we really like what you did. You know, we'll keep your number, you know, <laughs> or whatever. You know, I mean, it's nothing groundbreaking Well, and they all get asked, there. too, yeah. if they want to do it. So I don't know. If you're a player, you may be like, well, that sucks that I just – but. Maybe it's going to – maybe my attitude or something, someone else is going to see it. And, you know, every team in the world is – you know, well, Watch not the world. It. Every yeah. team in the league yeah. is combing the wires to see who gets cut. I mean, if you look around the league right now, you got these big-time running backs of, you know, Zeke and Dalvin Cook and some of these running backs. Because, yeah, Fournette. Yeah, and they're going to sit there and what's going to happen? They're going to wait and see if someone else gets cut. They're going to wait if, God forbid, someone gets hurt. Yeah. And they're going to call up and say – Dalvin, we need you. This one, we need you. And, you know, the running back position in general, the dynamics have changed. Yeah. I mean, everything used to, 
you know, revolve around the quarterback and the running back. But now I feel like it's the quarterback receivers and, and, and your line. And so, your defensive um, end, yeah, your addresses. Yeah, all yep. these running backs are indispensable. You look at a couple of years with these these teams that won a Super Bowl, they haven't been brand-name running backs to do it. It's all the other positions. So, Yeah, when someone trades up, high in the first round they're either picking a quarterback or an edge rusher you know it seems like yeah. those have been the, the the premium positions now listen fred i don't want to keep you any more than that we'll do it again we'll talk more jets uh in the future um Absolutely. I, I just got to know more about like what makes the nfl different so we'll do that next time i'm sure you'll come back yeah. to me sometime um and we can talk more do you have any questions for me no it's great appreciate you having me and yes. um you know look forward to catching up soon sorry we went as long as we did um uh, but really appreciate Going back in time with you talking about professional roller hockey, what a league, right? Uh, and all that. I appreciate but, you asking. Yeah. There's not too many people. Usually, when I bring that up, they're like, "You were in what? what? Minor league <laughs> hockey?" I'm like, "No, roller." They're like, "Roller hockey?" So maybe yeah. they know the thing with the ramp that was on ESPN, but that's a whole different thing. That was on the beach, right? Remember that they had the yeah. beach roller hockey? They had the ramp in the back yep. of it. Yeah, that's well. Whole... That's where it started, yeah. and uh, you know, look, roller blading was such a big deal in LA over the years. That's where, unfortunately, it just didn't. You know, if you're a hockey guy, it's a good training thing still to this day. But I think it may be on um, it's either on YouTube or Netflix. There's actually a, a special about the roller roller hockey international, and there's a documentary about the league the first year that an old colleague sent to me once, and I watched one day. I'm like, there's probably only 40 of us watching this, but it was pretty. It, it was a throwback to my early years in a career. So, you know, you never forget. As I tell everyone, don't forget where you, you came from. Right. And we'll end on this. I still think the most significant moment in the history of rollerblading was when Robin Quivers broke her wrist. Rollerblading. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to start and end with, with Howard. With Howard, so, yeah. You know, we'll go from there. Two New York guys, right? The, well, you're a New Jersey guy. I don't want to, you know, two New York area guys. I don't even live in the city. Um, I live in Buffalo, but you know what I mean? I'm a New Yorker. I right gotcha. All I right, gotcha. brother. I, I didn't want to call a New York, a New Jersey guy a New Yorker. You wouldn't answer my call All next good. time. All right, man. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. I was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. I want to thank Fred Mangione. What a debut! Coming in hot with one of the great sportscasters' debut of all time. I. I had an hour more of notes probably with Fred. We didn't even get to the Jets really much. And I got to know more about Baba Booey too. So we'll have Fred back. That was great. Thank you, Fred. All right, book club update. Let's do this quick. Uh, this was one we announced recently. Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments by Joe Poznanski. This is sort of the sequel to the Baseball 100, uh, which came out a few years ago in 2021. And now we hear 50 moments in baseball. Uh, I'm scheduled to speak to Joe on August 17th. And then the book comes out on September 5th. So we'll speak to Joe at the end of the month about this one. And September 5th, the book will come out. It is available available for pre-order. And I would suggest you do that. Here's a new one. 
Uh, I want to thank the publisher uh, for thinking of us on this one. It's called Kingdom Quarterback. Patrick Mahomes, the Kansas City Chiefs. How a once swinging cow town chased the ultimate comeback. Um, and this is about a dual history. It's about the history of the Chiefs and a history of Mahomes. It's by Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd. And it's perfect uh, for August, right? It's the perfect book, uh, book of the month for this time of year. We'll talk Pat Mahomes. We'll talk the Chiefs with Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd. This is available for pre-order. We'll be out soon. Some really great blurbs, including one by the before-mentioned Joe Piznanski, who says, The remarkable history of a thoroughly American city and its pathway to the center of professional football. Uh, so he's on there. Really great stuff. Uh, look forward to reading this and talking to the guys about it. Uh, last call for this one. I don't know what's happening here. Uh, I reached out about this book, Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek, How 17 Shows Transformed Television. Uh, it's by Tia Glassman. I reached out, said I was interested. They said, Tia's busy in July. She'll talk to you in August. Here's a book. It's now August. I think I'm ghosted. So we'll see. I'll give it one more try. If I don't hear back, that'll be the last you hear me talk about Freaks, Geeks, and Dawson's Creek. All right. And the last one sets up the next interview, The Wingmen. The unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams by Adam Lazarus. Let's find more about it now. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with our friend, Adam Lazarus. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long arm of the law. Lawman is putting in to my running and I'm so far from my home Oh mama I can hear you are crying you're so scared and all alone Hangman is coming down from the gallows and I don't have very long Our next guest is an author, a father, a friend, a Steelers nut. And he's making his latest appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to my main man, Adam Lazarus. Hey, Adam, what's going on? Not much. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So the Braves are 60 and 33 as we 63 and 33. They're 30 games above 500, whatever the record is. Yeah, best record in baseball. Yeah. What's it like in Atlanta right now? I mean, <laughs> there's there's a lot of enthusiasm about the Braves. That's sure. That's for sure. Okay. Um, there have been there has been I think probably since they won the World Series two years ago. Uh, but I still, God, I'm gonna get like egg. My house is gonna get egged. I don't still think that Atlanta is like the greatest sports town in the world. Right. Well, um, you remember what happened in '95 with Dave Justice, right? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I th- and I think I think he said that for good reason. Yeah, I don't. And I yeah. Think I think it's still, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's true on some level. Um, there, there's like the the biggest thing. I mean, I've lived here for 15 years now. The biggest thing is still UGA football, Georgia football. Sure. So uh, especially I mean, that, in the, and they're in a dynasty right now. I mean, you yeah. Couldn't be a better but even era. before, yeah. I mean, that was the thing. I remember when I when I first moved down here. Um, there, 
I, I turn on, I, I used to listen to a lot of local sports talk radio and stuff. Same. And yeah. the, it, it was, they were live covering uh, recruiting day, national recruiting day. Like not just like little break-ins, like whole shows. Um, and that, that, that's clearly stuck with me because it was like 15 years ago. So it was even before they started this run. Um, that's the driving force in Atlanta sports. Like people are happy. The Braves are good. You know, there's some diehards for sure. Um, and the new stadium is, they got a lot that, better than they got that right. Right. I mean, yeah, it, the battery it, park and everything. There. Yeah. That's the thing is it's the battery. Like people yeah. go there now and don't even go to the games. Um, and I think that's really helped grow interest in the team. And, you know, it's not just about baseball. It's kind of like an experience. I've gone to some games where, um, I don't even think people, you know, maybe they had tickets, maybe they didn't, but they just hung out in those uh, bars and shops and stuff outside the stadium. I mean, they've done a fantastic job putting putting that environment together. Um, and the team's great. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the best team in baseball, and they have a fantastic farm system, and they have a bunch of young guys who they were smart to get under contract early. So, yes. um, Alex, is, uh, Alex yeah. is the best. Him and his team, I think, are the best in baseball. You know, it's interesting because when the stadium was first being built, it was, oh, this is such a mistake. It's in Cobb County. The big Boston's going to be arresting everyone who doesn't respect the law and order. It's going to be so much hard times. And then also there was like, oh, you can't park. You got to walk over the highway. There was, But it seems like it was just growing pains. You know, it and is as still the area not developed, easy. And, yeah. It is not easy to park there. I'll say that. Okay. I mean, if you have a parking pass, it's still, it's still a bit tricky. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, they've done everything right the thing i i think i just remember was they built turner field for like the olympics which was like 96 97 right yeah 96. was when it opened i think yep. i yep. think it opened in 97 uh right for baseball it's weird yeah, yeah. 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 to put a new to build a new stadium 20 years later um that that to me is crazy but uh, they had their reasons and they it's clearly paid off and it's it's a tremendously well-run franchise and and they're set for the next whatever 10 years or so yeah, Texas was another team that did that. The Rangers had uh, two stadiums pretty quickly, back-to-back, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of haves and half-nots in Major League Baseball still. Yeah, and sometimes, I don't know. I don't know if it's just admitting you got it wrong or, or what happens, but I don't know. Some stadiums, if you look at baseball right now, like Camden Yards is like, I think, the fourth oldest stadium in the league. Oh man, I don't know if that's true, but if it is, that's crazy. There's the two. There's the two really old ones, right? Wrigley and, um, and Fenway. And Fenway, and then it's yeah. like Dodger Stadium, Kauffman Stadium. Yeah, you might be right. And then yeah. there's maybe that's... one more. I mean, there's very few because Camden Yards is the oldest of the new stadiums, right? So Camden Yards is probably like thirty years old. I think it was ninety two. I was going to say ninety two. I think it opened, and yeah. that now is. I mean, definitely in the bottom ten, if not the bottom five, oldest. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that is crazy. Yeah, that, uh, I remember when Camden Yards opened; it was like the first of those new ballparks, and everybody was raving about it. And because uh, everything before that had been like you know, uh, Veteran Stadium and Three Rivers and uh, Riverfront, like those cookie cutter, right, all, you know, exactly. half baseball, half football, astroturf stadiums. Yeah, and they really redid it with with Camden Yards and. Then I know the Indians opened up Jacobs Field, and and the Mariners had a new place, and yeah, it's it's been it has been a real like uh, renaissance for baseball stadiums in the last twenty years or so. There was a cool baseball stadium nugget dropped in quarterback. I don't know if you watched, oh really? I don't know if you watched it or caught this, but Patrick I started it. Patrick Holmes is kind of throwing the ball around. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he's talking about Oakland. 
And he's like, yeah, it's the only field me and my dad both played on. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, and I started to think about it. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. All right, so Fenway Park is the oldest by two years over Wrigley. Then Dodger Stadium. Then the Angels Stadium of Anaheim. Uh, Oakland, which is going to be out of the mix here. Yeah, it's all right. It's uh, DOA. Right. Kauffman. Rogers Center. Uh, Tropicana, the White Sox, and then the Orioles. Wait, how old is Tropicana? Tropicana, it says 90. Really? The Dome, which did not host Major League Baseball until expansion Devil Rays began playing 98. And that's why I didn't have that one in the mix, because some lists will just have it as 98 because they didn't have baseball. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even realize they played that, that was a stadium before they had baseball. There. Neither did I. So what? So let's say we'll count that one. We won't count Oakland though, because they're out. We'll just say they're going to be gone from that, or we'll just say one of the, one way or the other. One of those two shouldn't be counted. So we'll go one. Oh, it's pretty remarkable two, that the three. Angels don't have a newer stadium, considering it's L.A. I mean, the Dodgers keep Dodger Stadium because it's like an iconic place, but there's nothing other than Reggie Jackson trying to assassinate the Queen. I'm not sure anything right. really ex- yeah. ever happened there. Thank God for Frank Drebin saving yeah. the day there. Mm-hmm. They have a rich owner too. I mean, you know, in a relatively rich neighborhood. I don't know. And they're going to save money on not paying Otani next year. Right. I can't believe they're going to trade Otani. I guess they – it's the only thing is I look at it like it's not like the NBA or the NFL. They can trade him to the Yankees and or whoever and get, I guess, you know, get a boatload of prospects. If one of them, maybe two of them pan out, is it, is it worth it? I don't, I don't know. Like Otani, I don't know how long he's going to be able to do what he's doing now, both at the plate and on the mound. But to, to replace him, I, I, unless it's all about saving money because they, they're going to have to pay him $700 million next year, I don't know what you get out of training him. Yeah, I mean, especially since, like, I mean, just the attraction of Otani. What's the value yeah. of that? You know what I mean? I don't know. Like, and even if you're not, I, if you if you're gonna rebuild around, like let's say you're gonna be rebuild, like why not rebuild around him? I mean, if I was gonna I trade, is, why not trade Trout? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Trout's I know older. He's, he's always hurt, so he, he's, he is always hurt. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the bigger problem is you have to figure that they have a systemic problem on yeah, their in yeah. their front office for them to have those two guys and to be so mediocre every year. Uh, well, look at San Diego. Five years. Yeah, God, I don't know what to say about San Diego. How much money have they spent? They have three guys. I mean, they have three guys making, you know, sick money, and they are. Uh, they're not. I don't think they're last place, but they're under. Well, they're last now. place. They're not last place because of the Rockies are thirty-eight and fifty-nine, but they're forty-seven and fifty-one. Oh man! And they gave. I don't know if they. I assume they gave up a ton for Juan Soto. Oh, absolutely. I know yeah. they're paying him a ton. I, yeah. I, you have to assume they gave up a lot of their farm system for him. Yeah, I don't understand those teams. You know, I, I, I just think that, you know, whatever sport it is, you know, the Rangers in hockey who had all those years in the 90s where they would just get every play, Eric Lindros, Theo Fleury, Pavel Bray, like they would just, and they just never made the playoffs. You know, then there was the Redskins in football or the, well, they're the Redskins then. Um, they would, you know, Bruce Smith and Deion Sanders and all these guys never helped them, you know, and then yeah. it just seems like building super teams that way just doesn't work in any sport except basketball. Yeah, hey, I remember when, the, remember when the Eagles did that, they got, they, I think it may have been they, one year, they the first year they had Chip Kelly, 
they went out and signed a ton of guys. Yeah. And they were like eight and eight. And they had that first drive on Monday Night Football. They scored a touchdown and they were like going boom, 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 boom. End zone. Everyone's like, oh my God, Chip Kelly's here. It's unbelievable. And then it was just like all downhill from there. It's like, oh man, yeah. that didn't you work. You can't, I mean, the more, more sports you watch, I feel like the less you can predict things. I feel like I used to know a lot more about how a season was going to go than, than I do today. The Sabres are in a drought. I think it's the longest in sports right now, playoff drought. Is it really? Yeah, I think them and the Jets might be tied. So, <laughs> and I've been, I was, and they're, they're probably not going to be in the drought for much longer, right? So they finally built a team. It seems like that, you know, they have a really good young core. I mean, they missed by one point last year. And they're probably ahead of schedule a little bit last year, right? So I'm thinking about like when it started and like, so it started, they started to trade the core. Well, it's really started in 07 on the same day when they lost their both both of their captains, Chris Jury and Danny Briere on July 1st, 2007. That was the beginning of the end, but it didn't truly end until 2011 when they traded Ryan Miller and Thomas Vanek and Jason Pominville. And I remember all those trades were good trades. They got really good value back for all of those guys. And the GM at the time um, was really good with a limited budget. That was his flex. And then when Terry Pagula bought the team and said, here's an empty checkbook, he wasn't as good at that. And the, the free agent signings, one year they wanted Brad Richards. They didn't get him, so they got the second best guy, you know, Kyle Poso, who it turns out was just really good because he was playing with John Tavares. Like, so I saw that era. Didn't, that did, I saw that didn't work. And then I saw the tank era, you know, with Eichel, which really didn't work. Um, and then I see what they've done next, which is just you just got to be patient and rebuild the system. You just got to start from the bottom, draft pick after draft pick. Don't rush anyone. You know, don't miscast. Don't put a 19-year-old at second line center in the NHL because you don't have a second line NHL center. Just let him stay in the AHL. If that's You know what I mean? Like, it just legitimately took saying, okay, we're going to be bad. We just have to accept it. I don't think many teams have the patience for that anymore. More, many don't. franchises yeah. don't have the patience for it. I mean, I look at the Pirates – and they've they've free they've been so bad for other than that one year in, I think it was twenty fifteen couple years yeah they had a couple years and yeah they won, the wild, they won the wild card were in the wild card game they and they they were in first place and the, at the beginning of the year and yep. now that I think they're in last place and I guess they're the kind of, those are the kind of franchises that can afford to do it I think in baseball it's a little easier because people like to go to the ballpark and people love PNC especially Park. that one especially that ballpark yeah, yeah. but you, I, I I don't know how many franchises have the patience to say yes we're just going to be bad for three years uh and we just have to you know not go crazy at the trade deadline not invest in any of the sports in the nfl or whatever and and not invest you know 65 million dollars in this guy or whatever well both of our teams in the nfl are on the opposite side of a generational quarterback right and trying and try they're both it seems like sort of trying to middle it as best as they can uh, I, I like Kenny Pickett. I, well, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a Kenny Pickett fan. I think he's going to turn for, into. I, I like a Pickett good too. I like. I have no problem with Pickett. Um, but they certainly didn't tank to get Pickett, right? Like they're trying no. to yeah. maintain their level. They got, you know, I think they got a little fortunate that someone and I like Pickett, so I think he's very good. Was there at 21? You know what I mean, or whatever it was in the 20s. I think. I think it was 20 or yeah, 21. Yeah, like on the grid the other day, it was like top 10 Steeler draft like one of them was top 10 the Steelers are one I'm like 
I went with Bradshaw because I knew he was first overall, but I had a hard time thinking of Steelers. How often are the freaking Steelers drafting the top 10? Yeah, a, in the top 10? Yeah, mm-hmm. I had a really hard yeah, time. I, I don't, Plaxico I, Burris, I think, was the most recent one. He was like nine or something. Yeah, there was two years in a row they drafted receivers that high. I think Troy, they had drafted Troy Edwards at like eight, and they drafted Burris at nine the next year. But even Roethlisberger was 11, I think. So, yeah, they've not been they, – they've you know, it's a well-run franchise. But, yeah, like the Saints, they said bye to Breeze and then, and then Peyton – you know, essentially quit. Um, and they tried to do everything they could the same except for Peyton and Breeze. You know what I mean? They didn't like Dennis Allen got the job. He, he deserved the job, I suppose. You know, he, he, he was a big reason why that Breeze got to, you know, the four divisions and four playoff runs at the end of his career. So Dennis Allen was able to come in and fix the defense and he deserved a shot. I've never seen someone so bad as a But head they coach. didn't actually think. They didn't actually plan on Taysom Hill actually being their quarterback, right? No, I like, think I think there was moments when Sean Payton thought so, but no, the plan was for Jameis to be the quarterback after. Bruce. No, but even didn't they didn't they re re up him again recently? They've re upped him to do what he's doing because it's incredibly okay. valuable. I mean, uh, there's no uh, you, you just don't watch you just don't watch the games. Trust me, he's, I do watch he's them. incredibly I do valuable. I I know, but what the god? And he doesn't make money he in. doesn't make as much as you think because the high end of his his contract is based on if he's a quarterback. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So he doesn't make as much as you think, but um, no, the plan was for Jameis to be the quarterback, and they were five and two when Jameis tore his ACL against Tampa Bay on Halloween. You know, and then the whole season went to shit. I mean, we had Trevor Simeon playing. So, no, I think they had a really good plan. Like, let's see if we can rebuild Jameis behind Breeze for two seasons and give him a shot. And he was doing perfectly fine. I think they definitely would have made the playoffs with Jameis that year. Um, and then the second year, I mean, he was never he was never healthy. He was never healthy again after that week seven game. So, so are you wild about uh, Derek Carr? No, I, I think he's probably like... I mean, he's probably in the top three or five quarterbacks in the NFC, depending on how you feel about some guys, right? Like, depending how you feel about Prescott and um, Daniel Jones. I mean, there's not a lot of great quarterbacks in the conference. Um, And I, I think it's a very good roster from top to bottom. But then in the end, my quarterback and coach are Dennis Allen and Derek Carr. And I, I don't know. That doesn't make me want to do a backflip. Yeah, I could see that. You know, it's a weak division. Um, I also think, like, Atlanta and Carolina are maybe not as bad as people think. Uh, uh, I think Atlanta's going to be pretty bad this year. I hope so. I mean, I always hope they're going to be bad. They're my least favorite team in all of sports, obviously. I wish them <laughs> nothing but the worst. Um, but I don't know why. Like, it just, just seems like they can do what they did last year again. Why not? And isn't Bijan better than whoever they had? They had. LG Crumpler or whoever it was running for a thousand yards last year. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I mean, what was their record last year? It was what six and ten, seven and nine. Yeah, like they were under five hundred. I know they were like everybody was in that race for a while. That's what I mean. See again, like when I say not that bad, I mean like not that bad to win the AFC Championship game against Kansas City or Buffalo. 
I mean, like, not that bad to possibly win the NFC South is what I mean by not that bad. Yeah. You know what but I they mean? They don't have a quarterback. I mean, they, they weren't even uh, – I don't know how they were winning Well, they're going to go with the kid they drafted, right? Yeah. He He's not good, I hope. I thought yeah. it was hilarious. I didn't even realize because I try to ignore him as much as I can. I didn't even realize that uh, Mariota just quit and left the team. That is oh, that's one of my favorite Falcon stories of all time. That is just so good. And that's, that's in team the, DNA because that's what Bobby Petrino did. And that dumb coach that they have with that dumb look on his face all the time, just like answering questions about it. Like, is he in the building? No. Is he coming back? I don't, I don't know. Like just. Oh man, they they look so bad in quarterback at the end there. Just yeah. Mariota doesn't look much better, but the whole thing looks so bad. They're like, yeah, we're gonna try the the rookie, which seemed reasonable. And Mariota's like, all right, I'm getting knee surgery and going home to Hawaii. See ya. Yeah, I guess I guess the Eagles signed him, right? The Eagles did, which yeah. I mean, seems smart, right? I mean, if if you're gonna miss Hurts for a couple of years for weeks, let's yeah, say at a minimum, like he seems a like a guy who could do that. What? You know what you're trying to do with Hertz doesn't seem like that much yeah. of a stretch. Not at the same level. I I am still shocked Hertz is as good as he was because I got to watch him for a year at Oklahoma. You know, my friend played at Oklahoma when I was a kid, so I've always watched Oklahoma football, and um, so I watched that whole year, and I I was impressed with the human being. So maybe like sometimes you have to be. That's maybe sometimes even more important. You know what I mean? Because I was very impressed with Jalen Hurts the, the person. But yeah. he just he turned the ball over every second at OU. I think he's a really good quarterback. I I think I guess they had no choice but to give him, you know, whatever they gave him, $180 yeah. and half of that guaranteed or But whatever. he's still not quite as good as as he as he's getting the rapport, I, yeah, right? I, I yeah. don't think he's I, I don't still think the he's doubters in that out class. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't think he's in, on the level of Mahomes or, or Allen or Gosh, I don't even know. It's so it's so weird. You got to figure. He battled Mahomes. To- he went toe to toe with Mahomes in the Super Bowl, though. He did have a great game. Yeah, I, it's like he's got to be just sitting at the other end, listening to the same. What do I have to do for these idiots? <laughs> I mean, so, but I get it because I kind of feel the same way. I'm like, just don't believe it for some reason. You know, I don't know why, but I still think sometimes about how close the Saints were to drafting Mahomes. Like, You're not. That's not the only guy. You know, uh, there's a lot of fan bases out there who well, I'm sure feel the same way. But the, they were they were literally Mickey Loomis had walked out of the room to call Drew Brees to tell him we're about to pick Mahomes, and then the Chiefs traded up and picked him ahead of them. So, and the reason they said they didn't move up is because they had Mahomes and Lattimore in the same line, so they knew then that they were going to get Mahomes or Lattimore. Yeah, I tend to believe that that as great as Mahomes is, and same thing with like Brady. If you can't just assume that if the guy goes to a different no, but I can assume that he would have done great with. with, uh, I can. I think that's reasonable, but I I also think like I remember when the Browns passed on Roethlisberger. Everybody, you know, three or four years later, they were all the Browns fans were kicking themselves. We could have had Roethlisberger. I, I don't know. First of all, that franchise back then was even worse than it is sort of now. You just assume that the guy goes into a different city and a different franchise with a different bunch of coaches and mentors in the locker well, room. Well, and Mahomes, and Mahomes in Chicago is the same thing too, right? Like because everyone they pick Trubisky, yeah, right? yeah. And yeah. I, okay, and so I, I get it. The Jets were the Jets were supposed to draft Deshaun Watson, 
And, you know, he would have turned out, assuming he would have turned out the same way with the Jets. You just don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's such Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback. I will take my chances with Mahomes on that Saints roster with Sean Payton, though. That's I, I will yeah, say I mean, that yeah. probably would have worked pretty well. Yes, um, I, I think you're right about that. So, and they were, they were, I mean, Mickey Loomis was literally about to, like, seconds away from calling Drew Brees because they wanted to let him know before it was on the TV that they were going to pick a quarterback. And I guess the only thing, the only thing that isn't quite known is like what if 17 happens the way it happens, because Mahomes didn't play in 17 for the Chiefs, he wouldn't have yeah. for the Saints either, right? And the Saints went 11 and 5. That was the year of the Minnesota Miracle. Mm-hmm. So if that happens and they get that close, what happens in 18? You know what I mean? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't. It would be really hard to not bring Breeze back in eighteen, and then, boy, he would have been over forty by then, right? But eighteen, they were even better. I mean, they went thirteen and three, and they got cheated out of a Super Bowl, essentially. Yeah, that's so true. that's where I guess the you assume kind of thing gets dicey, right? Is like when do you pull the when do you pull the plug on the one player in history that's actually made a difference to the city, to the team, that made all of our dreams as fans come true, right? Like, it's a really delicate situation. It's not replacing Alex Smith. You know what I mean? You know, it's a lot trickier. And especially now, part of me doesn't think they would be as good without Lattimore in 17, though, because Lattimore is the best cornerback they've ever had in the history of the Saints. Maybe there's someone I just don't know enough about before 1987, but certainly mm. since I've been watching in 87, there's nobody close to Lattimore um, they've ever had. And they've, I mean, and admittedly, it's been a weakness almost every year, um, which is ironic as I sit under a corner who made the biggest play in team history, maybe in Tracy <laughs> Porter here. Tracy Porter, <laughs> yeah. I have a huge fat head on my wall right next to me. And he's, He's pointing his finger towards the end zone behind the late great Will Smith and Scott Shanley here. Um, but uh, so I don't know. So maybe 17, maybe they don't end up being as good without Lattimore, who is, you know, the defensive rookie of the year, you know, that year. So I don't know. You're right. It's a tough what if. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this. So your, your new book, it's The Wingman, The Unlikely, Unusual, Unbreakable Friendship Between John Glenn and Ted Williams. And I don't know if you saw. Or no, it was it was on the podcast. I was talking about it in the book club. And I said I can admit this to Adam now because I like the book. I said, but when he first told me about this book, I was like, oof. Oh, it's gonna be a tough read. I was like, I'll do it for a friend, but oh man, I don't know if I need to read about John Glenn and Ted Williams. And you gotta uh, have an appreciation for <laughs> old history. And and it, it comes to life when you start reading it. It's an unbelievable I'm what I tell you, I'm on like page fifty eight or something. And it's an unbelievable narrative, and you know it really starts to come to life. But I'll admit, the initial sell, I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, keep working on that one. Can't wait to have it." <laughs> so I was being a good friend, but I well, like, you know, I was I yeah. did three I did three books in a row that were basically '80s and early '90s NFL, right? And I loved and all three I, of those books. I, I I loved doing them, and they yeah. got good reception and everything, but. I wanted to do something different. Fair. Um, Very fair. Yep. And I wanted to I wanted to branch out. I was, you know, try to get a little bit away from sports. And this book's 
partly a sports book, but it's not entirely. Um, and I wanted to do something different than football. I'd done, I'd done three in a row and three football books in a row. And I was trying to, you know, I've kind of felt a little bit sort of inside baseball. I kind of felt like I was just cookie cutter doing the same thing over and over again, even though they were all different books and about different subjects and players and teams. Um, but I kind of felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again, and I wanted to do something different. And that's when I found the story. I, I thought it might have some appeal. Obviously, like you know, exactly like you said, this is probably for an older generation. Uh, Although the buzz it. has been incredible so far. Yeah, I've gotten some. You know, some people have. A, I, I think uh, some people have a real soft spot for Ted Williams uh, in terms of the baseball angle. I know some of the people who I've talked to they would read anything with Ted Williams in it. Um, so probably the people that work at the place where his head is, they probably want to read it. Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. No, no they wouldn't be interested. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't think so. No. Uh, um, look at, I, I think the buzz has been incredible. You got to go talk at the hall of fame about the book, right? Yeah. They have a annual, uh, symposium that, uh, people come and talk about their books or research they've been doing. And what was yeah, that? Like? It was cool. I mean, I love Cooperstown. I I used to go to Cooperstown as a kid all the time. Same, yeah. Um, And I hadn't been there in a long time. Same. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the Hall of Fame is, for the most part, exactly the same as I remember it. Maybe a little bit more, you know, interactive kind of stuff. Maybe a little more video monitors and stuff that they didn't have in the 90s when I went there. Uh, But the Hall of Fame is pretty much the same. Uh, the town's virtually the same. Yep. Uh, that was I actually, as a kid, I used to love going into less going into the Hall of Fame because we go every year, so not much changed. And I loved going into the memorabilia stores. Yeah, the shops. That the yeah. baseball cards and the jerseys and all that stuff it has just as much history outside of the Hall of Fame. So yeah, I, I got to speak there, and um, they have a section that's like in the back behind the Hall of Fame. It's sort of like their research and history center and uh got to speak to a crowd interested and it was partly about my book but partly i kind of um opened it up a little bit more about there were actually four pilots in the marine corps who played major league baseball uh during the korean war so i kind of talked about all four of them and one of them the main one that i talked about was ted williams um but it was a cool experience and yeah you know getting invited to speak to the hall of fame is a real honor did uh did your kids went right yeah, they what went did they, and, what uh, did they think of the Hall of Fame, like in general? Um, they liked it. They, okay. uh, the, I mean, I think you know they, they couldn't really appreciate all the history. They're only nine. I was going to say uh, they're about nine, ten, right? I knew they're a couple yeah, years older than my daughter. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. nine. Um, the I, I think you know the the actual Hall of Fame with the plaques that was really interesting to them. Even uh, learning, you know, because it has that sort of quick bio, and it's cool to see those molded faces i don't know what you the bronze plaques yeah I don't know how you yep. describe them um mm-hmm. but uh that was cool and they, there were kinds there were certain guys that they would hear about i remember my son saw something about Wee reese and how he was kind to jackie robinson because they knew who jackie robinson was of but, course yeah uh there was a, a thing about how Wee reese was kind to jackie robinson and you know tried to ward off uh the the people who were hurling racist things at him and so my son was really interested in who was who's Wee reese who's Wee reese so we went back inside and, and looked at his plaque and i told him what i you know knew about that and um yeah i mean baseball history is kind of it's it, it's kind of a more unique club than anything it's so old baseball history is so old you know yeah if you don't know if you don't know the players who played in the early 1900s you can't relate as well as 
you forget how young some of these leagues are, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> I know we're not. I mean, Premier League, whatever, but the Premier League started in the nineties. You know, well, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. And there was soccer in England, obviously, before that. But the Premier League started in the nineties. I mean, the NFL, the Super Bowl era, the first Super Bowl was what, nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, and I mean, even the NBA, yeah. real, the NBA didn't even really start until the late 40s, and sure. the modern NBA is is at best like the Will Chamberlain, Jerry West, Bill Russell era, so the early 60s. So. And the NHL is old, but only had six teams. You know what I mean? Yeah. Really expansion, and like what the Sabres were in the second or third expansion, that was 1970. So they mm. forever had six, seven, eight teams, you know what I mean? So the, yeah. yeah. That's why the Leafs fans, like we we have a big rival with the Leafs. And they chirp us about how they, they have more Stanley Cups, but they don't have any yeah, since nineteen sixty seven. And they have none since nineteen sixty seven. They don't we were not even in the league for three years since they won their last one, and they haven't won any with more than six teams in the league. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, okay. Easier good to win for championships you. Yeah. Than yeah. And the Rangers weren't winning them, so take them out. So now you're out you're five with the Rangers that won one since nineteen forty. So you you're competing against five teams four, you're one of them, so four teams really. So yeah piss off Toronto but baseball is so unique like I've read so many books in 12 years so many sports books in 12 years doing this right um because I try I really do try to read every book and I don't think there's one book that I haven't at least read half of you know there's been Mm -hmm. a couple I had to tap out but I think if the author's gonna send me a book give me a half hour to an hour like I owe them that you know what I mean so I Mm -hmm. really do and the thing about baseball books that's so different is I would much rather read you know, John Pessa's Yogi um, over, I don't know, Moneyball or something newer, whatever's newer. You know, like there's something about the history of baseball that's so romantic. And like I just watched, speaking of Yogi, I just watched the documentary his granddaughter made about her. Him. Uh-huh. It's called um, It Ain't Over. It's mm-hmm. unbelievably great. Like yeah. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. I don't even think that's hyperbole. Um and but there's just something about when you're in, and I think that's what I overlooked when anticipating this book, is in the end you just get sucked into the history and the romance of it. You know, you, you mentioned your kids like the Jackie Robinson angle. That was a part of the documentary too. How Yogi was also an early supporter of Jackie, um, and his wife is on the documentary talking about the friendship they had and how important uh, Yogi was. And she mentioned like five or six other players too that were kind of stars in the game at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really helped with the integration. But he won 10 World Series as a player. Uh, he won three more as a coach. Never as a manager, yeah. but three as a coach. Listen to this. Let me do, let's me do. let do a name that, that player, okay? And you know it's Jackie because we're talking about him, right? But just listen to this without a name. Let's say you put this for someone in a name. American League MVP voting, 1950 to 1956. Third, first, fourth, second, First, first, second. Yeah, you wouldn't. Did you realize he was that good? I didn't. Yogi? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember growing up reading about Yogi, and uh, honestly, you know, I think Johnny Bench is the greatest catcher in baseball history, but Yogi's probably second. Got to be second then. Yeah. Piazza, yeah, maybe um, third. Who? Piazza. I mean, he's done oh, his own runs. God, I don't know. No, I think. Uh, I mean, be, I, I was so part. I was so partial to Pudge Rodriguez. Pudge Rodriguez. Just, okay, I don't have a problem. He with Pudge. was That's so fine. great behind the plate. Then, although, then, then Piazza's four. Then you know what I mean. Th- those have got to be the next two. I would think. 
and Carlton Fisk too. Carlton uh, Fisk, yeah, all right. Yeah, that uh, would probably be my top five. Sure, that's fair. Uh, but like you, the thing about Yogi was, I, I, he he was just unbelievable behind the plate before that kind of thing was appreciated. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and he started it, it, he, horrible. He he wasn't really yeah. a catcher. I know that they York. had. Yeah, he was. I think that he played in his first World Series. I think it was in '47. I think I remember reading about he was absolutely brutal behind the plate. Yeah, and then uh, they brought him. They brought in Bill Dickey, I think, who was a Hall of Fame catcher before him to teach him. And uh, yeah, and uh, he also uh, he played the outfield. He yeah, was such field. a clutch hitter. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, three MVPs. It's weird though that uh, it would never happen today. That 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 early '50s that. Barrow won three MVPs as a catcher, and Campanella won three MVPs as a catcher. Yeah, which is just it's just wacky when you well, think. Adley about Rushman it. might win three MVPs though. Mm. I don't. Oh, God, he might. He's uh, he's sick. Especially if especially if, especially if Otani somehow goes to the National League, right? Yeah. Because right now Otani's just like a vote sucker. Seems like people, just yeah. vote, you know, the two. But here's the cool thing about the doc: the impetus of it kind of starts with. His granddaughter's watching the All-Star game in 2015 with him, and they're mm-hmm. announcing the four greatest living players of all time. You know, and he's he, and she turns to him and says, well, what are you, dead? You know, <laughs> and uh, he goes, I don't think so. And the, the kind of the thesis of it is everyone thinks Yogi Bear is a clown because of the quotes and the cartoon mm-hmm. character, but look at how great he actually was. And, man, do they deliver on that. It's a you got to watch it. You will love it. Like, someone yeah, likes... Should. You know, for four ninety nine or whatever it cost me to rent, I watched it twice until you know in the forty eight hours I had it. He and he and Ted Williams were very good friends too. Yeah, and they talk about Ted Williams in it a, a bit too. Um, but so you do you feel like when you go into work a book like Wingman and you do like do you feel like you know Ted Williams now just kind of different level? I know I told you Drew Brees was nine because of Ted Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I I feel like you know I've done this is my fifth book and I've actually. Tor, you know, toyed with a few other subjects here and there, um, and and done the research for him. And you know, m- famous, famous baseball pe- uh, sports people: Arnold Palmer yep. and uh, Bill Belichick, Steve Young, Joe Gibbs, Joe Montana. Steve Young, Montana, yeah. and Ted Williams was without question the most complicated, enigmatic figure I've ever written about. Uh, so to say, do I? Do I think I know him? Um, yeah, I do. But he—he uh, was—he's such a, a a strange character to to cover. I'm sure the people who covered him as a player, and even years later, like the 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 Boston press who covered him, even when he wasn't a player, like you know Peter Gammons and Dan Shaughnessy and the people who uh, covered him for Sports Illustrated, Tom Verducci and S.L. Price and all those guys, and, and Richard Ben Kramer. Yeah, um, they probably were just as wowed by who he was. He was such a strange character. He was such a, he was such a, you know, I don't know if you could say it on your podcast, but he was such an asshole to some people. Yeah, you say whatever you want, yeah. And yeah. he was such an asshole to some people. He, it, it, I, pers- his personal life, his, his wives, his ex-wives, and people he ran across, and certainly the, the local press that covered him. And then he was so kind and caring to other people. Um, I heard DiMaggio's like that, too. Yeah, well, I, I don't know how. I, I, yeah, I mean, DiMaggio was apparently incredibly grouchy, uh, but also even worse. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I know. I was. I, I can't remember where I was reading this, but um, 
someone was telling me this maybe that uh dimaggio and williams were talking at, at an event and um someone he, he had agreed williams had agreed to talk to someone at sports illustrated and Dima, the, the the reporter came over and dimaggio was like no i don't talk to sports illustrated anymore uh because i guess they had written something nasty about him and williams like totally laid down the law he's like no i said i'm going to talk to sports illustrated you're going to talk to sports illustrated and he stood up for him uh so yeah the, the, those guys i mean it was such a different era they, they were not today players know that aside from a handful of guys you know the being accessible 24 7 is part of your job right and i don't think it was a because guys like that um it was a different era there wasn't 24 you know there wasn't espn there wasn't twitter there wasn't podcasts and 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 uh instant media that uh i think a lot of those guys just wanted to be left alone and for the most part they could be and today guys there's a give and take because i think a lot of guys are way more sterile and measured and not good copy because of that because they're always being asked questions all the time right they're uh, jeters but it, the way jeter yeah, was or whatever yeah. exactly um so you give you give what you get in, in those cases but i think those those old time ball players they a lot of them you know didn't want to talk to reporters and uh for every babe ruth there was a guy like dimaggio or ted williams who was not you know open to talking to the press and you know spilling their guts and being great or or Barra, you know um yeah. it, it was it was a different era and um jeter's I, quote I, jeter's quote in the documentary he was he said the reporters were looking for a headline and there was no way i was gonna give it to him yeah, yeah. and i i think <laughs> a guy like ted williams didn't care one way or the other right ted williams gave, like you want a headline here you go he gave <laughs> yeah. he gave plenty of yeah i mean yeah. he got in a lot of trouble for things he said to the press over the years uh, and I don't think he cared. Um, and for him, you know, fortunately, his playing completely overshadowed that. He didn't. He, it cost him some MVPs, probably, but it didn't cost him oh, Hall of Fame of the and the legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at guy. Uh, there was guy. I remember when Albert Bell. Oh yeah, got, Joey was yeah. denied. He was basically denied the MVP because reporters didn't like him because he. Jeter probably lost an MVP because of that too. I mean, he, he would have won in 2006, but two guys from Boston voted him six and fourth. Yeah. Otherwise, he, uh, won. he wins. You so, but you, I guess those, there, there's guys who understand that the the writers make your you know a lot of the, yeah. a lot of the, make your legacy. The wingman, the unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams comes out on August 22nd. It's available for pre-order now. There's been some really good buzz. Our friend uh, Fred from Freezing Cold Takes has been uh, a big fan of the book. I've seen a bunch of tweets from people who are reading the you know the. Um, the advanced copy like I am and uh, really some great buzz. Now, when we talked initially and we were just on text, this kind of two dimensional conversation, which I do despise. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel the fever right away. Uh, Cause I just didn't know, but we're in a three dimensional world right now. Why don't you give that one minute, 30 second pitch about why people should pre-order? Cause I mean, I can say it, but they've already heard me say that about like 200 books. They're starting to not, not, not know if I'm being honest again. I am though. There's a lot of good books that come out, and I read them here. But um, what what would you say? What why should people pre-order The Wingman? Well, I would say that uh, most um, Americans know Ted Williams and John Glenn. Know who they are. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, maybe you should have paid a little more attention in definitely high school. Should read it. Yeah, definitely should uh, read it. Then. <laughs> but uh, I think you know a lot. 
thousands and thousands of pages have been written about these two guys. Um, I knew who John Glenn was as a kid. He was my state senator when I was a kid, and I knew the right stuff, the movie. Uh, same thing, you know, I was a big baseball history nerd growing up, so I knew everything about Ted Williams and his home run, 521 home runs and the 406 and all those things. And um, I didn't know at all this intersection that they were pilots together in the same small fighter squadron and during the Marine Corps during the Korean War. Uh, when I saw this picture of them together in Korea, uh, 1953, at a base talking together, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I guess maybe they ran into each other there. And when I started reading about it, I had no idea that they flew together. They flew missions together into North Korea during the Korean War, uh, dropping bombs uh, on enemy territory. And not only that, they became friends after that. And, you know, not best friends hanging out on the weekends, barbecuing together, not that kind of thing. But over their year, over the years, they stayed in touch. And especially when they sort of became old retirees, uh, they really reemerged as friends. And it's just an amazing story to me. Uh, makes me think about like you know friendships I have with people um, and how they're forged and how they survive years and distance and time um, and it, I don't know it's just to to me it was a really appealing story about two great Americans that everybody knows that they don't really know this aspect of it uh, so that's why I pursued it and that's why I wrote about it and I think that's why a lot of people have responded to it is that. Um, you know friendships like how do friendships get formed where do they come from why do they why do they stay alive or why do people drift in and out of each other's lives i think um there's a quote in the book john glenn's son actually told me this he said something like uh ted williams and john glenn were were very very different and that's something that i lay out in the book is they were absolute uh, polar opposites in almost every way but in a lot of way a lot of cases that's sort of what makes friendships like if you're exactly like your best friend that's not exactly interesting or appealing yeah. or um yep. so i think i look at that i, I look at i like that it's really about friendship right and deep yeah down, i mean right? it's yeah. Not, it, it's a book about how friendship formed under what uh, unusual circumstances how it sort of cold, cooled off and you know you know everybody has friends like that that maybe you went to high school with or you were in grad school with or college or you know, played little league with, and maybe you don't see them for 20 years and then they come back in your life. And that's kind of what happened in this story. And it's, it's kind of amazing because it's about two really extraordinary people. Did you ever see the movie, the great Santini? I did not. It's with, but I know it. It's with, uh, it was Duvall. With Duvall. Yeah. You've got to watch it. I, I just watched it. Like I, I listen to old Stern episodes every day. Mm -hmm. I know that's probably weird, but whatever. I'm a huge Howard Stern fan, but I hate, everything he's done since 2014. So I listened to episodes ranging from 1984 to 2012 every day. What happened in 2014? Well, right around then, well, really, a lot of people will say the cutoff is when Artie left in 2009. But I think the show maintained at least a reasonable level of enjoyment until around 2014 when A, Eric the Midget died, and B, uh, this woman named Marcy Tuck or Turk, Marcy Turk, took over in a prominent leadership role and really created the character that is Hollywood Howie and became, changed the vision of the show to being about interviews with people that Howard spent his whole career hating. You know, these A-list celebrities that, you know, and took away everything that's fun about the show. And I don't mean that this 72-year-old guy should, like, be having strippers in the studio. I'm not talking about that. 
You know what I mean? I'm talking about the interpersonal conflicts among the staff. I'm talking about Howard Stern, the everyman. You know what I mean? Who uh, who was just a man of the people. And I, maybe he just got too rich for that. I don't know. But um, he's just not the same guy anymore. And you could, I mean, if you listen to pick any week from the 2000s and listen to any week now, it doesn't take you two seconds to find the difference. But anyway, I was listening to one where Robert Duvall was on. It was the first time they had him on. Mm-hmm. And Howard was just going on and on and on about this movie, The Great Santini, and talking about this part where he's throwing the the basketball at his son's head, bouncing off his son's head, you know, because he's he's mad at his son. So his son beat him one on one, and for the first time, and the, the, the Great Santini, he takes it. But it's a great movie; you should watch it. I don't know. I was thinking about Santini when we were talking about Ted Williams and how he was, you know, this really sweet guy in one way, but also this maniac in another way right uh San- mm-hmm. santini's like that you you i think you would really like it this is another wild thing i just discovered while we we're sitting here because i was curious what year john glenn died if you google john glenn and then you go back to google and you google ted williams this little thing comes up that says john william john glenn plus ted williams find the difference or find the find what makes him equal or something it's really weird i think the thing that that's uh uh, I was surprised by, you know, I was mentioning earlier that, uh, you know, if you don't know who John Glenn and Ted Williams are, yeah. you probably should have made uh, paid better attention in high school. Now, I get if you're not a sports fan, I get why you wouldn't know Ted Williams. Sure. Uh, but people who don't know John Glenn. You should know Glenn. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. But I I like that somewhere along the line, it must have been the early part when I was researching the book. Um, I, I just Googled Ted Williams because I was probably trying to find his Wikipedia page or something. And the top. Google result was always that remember there was that story about that homeless guy who had like a golden voice who they got to um, someone found him like this homeless guy and he had this great voice that they thought he should be used for voiceovers and commercials and stuff. His name was Ted Williams. So that uh, was a big, do you remember that story? Yeah, it was dude, 10 years that. ago. Yep. Uh, and I, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I, I said something about Ted Williams and they were like, oh, that homeless guy who does radio ads. And I was like, oh, that the, to me, that pointed to uh, how easily uh, forgotten some of the things Ted Williams did was. I mean, there are some people who have unbelievable appreciation for um, everything that he did for a lot of people and just his baseball skills. But uh, it's, it surprises me that it, for some people, if you say the name Ted Williams, they think of that radio voice guy wow that's wild that's wild because ted williams the baseball player is the ted williams i'm sorry you know what i mean guys think about that like i think if i could push this a little bit farther this show and like just be a little bit more known i would be the steve bennett you know like i don't think there's anyone in the conversation for that you know um but i think about that with names like is there someone else that would be the that name not the guy i'm thinking of I don't know. It's got to be really tough for Latin guys. It seems like everyone. A lot of similar. Is there another there. Steve Bennett that you've heard of? No, I, I could be the one. You know what I mean? There isn't another one. I'm pretty sure I saw that there's an Adam Lazarus who's like a very successful clown in Canada. Oh, no. You would. You, yeah. You, you're still the Adam Lazarus, though. You think so? Yeah, I think so. All right, well, I'll take that. That's that's good. I mean, maybe not in Canada. Need. We maybe have to admit that he might be bigger in Canada. I don't have a Wikipedia page yet. I was talking to this um, uh, writer from the Athletic who lives in Canada. We did a uh, we did a um, 
a quick snake draft where you could pick any Canadian. So I said, yeah. I said to him, I said, you can go first. I'll pick the next two. So let's see. Let's see what you think. Who do you think he picked first? Of any Canadian any ever? Any Canadian. Yeah, it was, Gretzky? Yeah, he picked Gretzky. Then with the next two, I picked Wayne Gretzky. Or, excuse me. I picked Gord Downey and Neil Peart. So I went top two musicians of all time. Just get that totally squared away. He picked, I know he picked Ryan Reynolds. We did. Yeah, I was going to say Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, I think we did four or five rounds. He picked Ryan Reynolds and he picked um, the author, Margaret, uh, what's her name? Um, Atwood? Yeah, Atwood, Margaret Atwood, which I thought was a reach. Oh, man, I got to think about that. I know uh, he's a writer, but I don't know. I picked. Um, is it Norm McDonald Canadian? Norm McDonald's Canadian. Yeah, I, I would take him very high. Oh, my God. Oh, I just heard like the funniest Norm McDonald joke the other day. Oh, I know what it was. It was that whole his whole monologue at the Aspies because that was going. Oh around. yeah, because uh, I the saw clip, the, the clip. Charles Woodson yes. thing. Yes. So, yeah. so I was like, I gotta watch that whole thing, and I looked it up. It's just nine minutes of him just killing. He uh, had a show on Netflix before he died. Yeah, it's very good. Really yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I I watched it. I remember watching it like. It was only like six or eight episodes. It was just him doing interviews with people. That was really good. Yeah, I'm a that huge. Would, that, I wish that had gotten more. I wish he had done more episodes. I'm a huge Norm fan. Like Norm is the reason we have Artie Lang. You know what I mean? Norm brought yeah. Artie Lang, you know, back to Hollywood after he screwed up Mad TV. And um, he, Artie tells this great story about how Bob Saget was the producer of Dirty Work, the movie yeah. that Artie and um and and Norm did, and. A yeah, an unbelievably Tremendous. underrated movie. So good. And um so they're 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 like, you know, Norm wants Artie and Bob Saget's like, Well, I don't know, you know, he he just got, you know, ran off Mad TV for drugs and I don't know if we could trust him, whatever. So they they fly out, they're all together somewhere, and they 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 spend the day together, everything's going great, and they, they decide they're gonna go like play pool, have a drink, whatever. So they're at this bar playing pool and Artie's getting a little drunk. And he starts making eye contact with the with the guy in the bar, and uh, next thing you know, they're in the bathroom together, and uh, <laughs> and like even after that f up, right? The one thing they're like, "Can we trust this guy?" He, and he did that right in front of Saget and McDonald, and and uh, so Bob says, um, "What did he say?" Bob says to Norm, uh, "Did he just go in the bathroom to do it? Uh, to do? I think he just did." And Ed Norm goes, I hope so, because if not, he sucked the guy's dick. I, th- I thought that's where this is going. <laughs> too funny. He's too good. And he maybe, you know, for some people, maybe who have the sensibilities of 2023, maybe wouldn't be for them. Um, but people who grew up, I think, where we did and, you know, appreciate comedy as just comedy and jokes or whatever. He's he's one of the greats of all time. I'm trying to think who else I picked. Um <laughs> Canada? Gosh, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, I tried to, I tried to have the team be have different strengths. I know. Wasn't Neil Young Canadian? Neil Young was. He picked Neil Young. That was his last pick because he's like, I don't have any. You, you, you're killing me in music. I gotta get a musician. He picked Neil Young. Um, I'm trying to. I, I, my Canadian knowledge, I guess, is pretty scarce. Yeah, I want to say I pick Lemieux to counteract his Gretzky pick. Um, you got to I feel like if you're going to do that, you have to have like a cutoff of hockey players. Like three hockey players no more. What we said we're going to do is we're going to every time he's on, we're going to draft like four or five more, keep adding to our teams. 
But you got to stop with the hockey players after a while, and it's just naming hockey players. Yeah, I don't. I don't think only two are picked. I think Gretzky and Lemieux were the only two picked. Oh, really? Yeah, there was way more musicians picked than hockey players because he picked Bieber too. So there was four. I was waiting to hear. If yeah, he was gonna yeah, Bieber. I was never gonna pick Bieber. I mean, hell no. I picked freaking Gord Downey and Neil Pertz. I picked the guy from the Jaguars Hip and Rush. I don't have any room on my team for, for uh, just oh Michael J. Fox. I picked. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, I didn't pick him this time, but I know if we do do more rounds, Alan Thick will be on my team at some point. So I'm a big Growing Pains fan. I want to. I want to uh, Google it. Famous Canadians, but then I feel like I'm cheating. Yeah, Ackroyd. Well, we we said we we this time it was really spur of the moment because I thought of it like what's something we do to wrap this up, and I was like, oh, I should do a Canadian snake draft with them, and uh, so we were both just off the top of our heads in the moment, but we said like next time we do it, we will um we can have like rankings, you know, we can make a a cheat sheet like a fantasy football draft. <laughs> so we're gonna be ready for round. Well, round six through twelve or whatever we're gonna do next time, but yeah, it was a fun. It was a fun draft. I might start doing more drafts with people. That's a, that's a million show. dollar idea right there. You know, when people come on, I'm gonna think of like what they're known for or something, you know, and try to do snake drafts with them at the end. And I know snake drafts is something that people do. I think uh, the bar stool in Chicago they do it one every week. But I'm like, you know what? That's not like an original idea by them. So it can be anyone can use it. And I think in the context of just, like, at the end of the interview, you know, doing just four rounds, just, like, real quick. And then the idea of maybe building if they come out more times. You know, like, if me and Lee Jenkins did them, Lee Jenkins was famously on the show 20 times. Like, you know, we'd have, like, <laughs> what, tw- we'd have almost 100 players on our teams by now. You'd have a uh, deep bench. Yeah, it would be a very deep bench. Um, but, um, yeah, it will be fun. Maybe next time, when you come back next time, let's do a Steelers draft. A Steelers draft? Yes. Oh man! So we'll do we'll do that when we when you come back because you're gonna be back in a few weeks when the book comes out and we'll talk about the book like we'll go real and deep. You know I don't want to give too many spoilers now because we want people to go out and pre order it. But when well, you, yeah, no yeah. spoilers. I mean, maybe Ted Williams and Johnny Glenn are still alive and they'll call in. Right, exactly. So we want to wait for that. But at the end of it, next time we'll do a Steelers draft. So we both know it's in our minds. Yeah, you can do whatever. I mean, you probably don't need to do much. Rep- you know, prep for that anyway. But um, I guess we would need some criteria for what we're drafting for. Um, well, well, let's say this. Let's say we're going to eventually, we'll, every time you're on, we'll draft four or five more. So we're just trying to build out the best 53 we can. Okay. okay. You know what I mean? Like we probably never get to 53 each, but, you know, in our minds, we're depends just how many trying to make, right? right? Yeah. It depends how many books. We're just trying to figure out the, you know, who can get the best Steelers team. And I think to be eligible for the draft, they just had to play, you know, see, you know, a game or two with the Steelers. That's reasonable. You know? Okay. Um, so I'm going to go. I, I, I'm, now I'll let you pick again. You got to decide if you're going to want the first pick or the second two. Don't say now that you can think about it, but cool. I think, I think with the Steelers, you almost have to go second two. So I think the second and third best Steelers probably better than the first and fourth. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not. Something to look forward to. Yeah, we'll do that next time. Teaser. So, again, the book is called The Wingmen, The Unlikely, Unusual, Unbreakable Friendship Between John Glenn and Ted Williams by my good friend Adam Lazarus, who's also been on the show to talk about his Redskins book, Super Bowl Monday, uh, QB Rivals. Was that What was that one called with Steve Young and Joe Best Montana? of Rivals. Best of Rivals. 
Um, and the Jack Nichols, the golf book. What was that one called? Mm-hmm. Chasing Greatness. Chasing Greatness. So he's been on to talk about all of those books. I know the golf one and um, the football one we did kind of after they were released. The football one, people should go back and look. I love. We did like one hour just on Super Bowl twenty five. That's right, yeah. And it was really – I thought that was really good. And one of the Bills um, radio guys, one of the local radio guys, he – that, like, plays the I Love the Bills card. He actually does sideline for them now, too. Uh, Sal Capaccio, he tweeted that out for us. And a ton of Bills fans consumed that and enjoyed that. So that was a really good uh, thing we did. Uh, last thing, and I'll get you out of here on this. And I was curious about this because we were talking about – Maybe who who you should send the book to, and you would say sometimes like, oh, I don't know if they would like it. Oh, they would. Who are the people that wouldn't like it? Why why are there these people on the Ted Williams side? It seems like that maybe wouldn't like this book, and why? Like I didn't I didn't totally understand that part of it. Um, well, the whole uh, the, the the drama around his his remains okay is fresh for people. Okay, uh, that was it was a big deal. And I didn't want to write about it in the book. I mean, first of all, it's been written about many times. Second of all, I didn't want to it, – it, it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue to, like, tell the scandalous side of the story. But uh, – and this is a spoiler alert. I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. Um, when all that was going on – and it was a big deal. I remember – just this is 20 years ago. It was 2002. When he died, it was a big deal in the news. Oh, yeah. I remember. His, his son and his – his one daughter wanted to have him frozen and his other daughter didn't want to do that. And it was big back and forth and it was on the national news a lot. And people were talking about it. It was on newspapers. And I remember I put this in the book. I remember going to my first ever Red Sox game, uh, that like a, a, a couple weeks after that was all out and they were selling all these like hats and t-shirts and bumper stickers that said defrost Ted. Um, and I, I didn't want to put that in the book because unless it was relevant to this, to the John Glenn, Ted Williams friendship. And I came to find out that when that was all in the news and the, 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 the one daughter was in the news constantly telling people, you know, stop this. I don't want my dad. This isn't what my dad wanted. She was actively telling people, tell John Glenn, like John Glenn, if you're listening, I don't, I, you need to help us stop this, uh, of them freezing my dad's body. He didn't want this. You, you were his, he was your wingman, and now my daddy needs you to be his wingman. And so I put that in the book, and I uh, couldn't put that in the book without explaining what the drama was. Sure. And so, um, you know, the, it was it was a dicey story, and some people I don't know the exact truth, but some people did not seem to have the best interests at heart in in what was going on, and a lot of people thought it was overblown, and some of the people close to Ted Williams didn't like what was going on and his family had a different approach. And uh, it, it was, it was an ugly situation. It was a terrible way for that, um, for a really a great American's story to come to a close. And I think a lot of people really resented that it happened at all. Um, and I think there's hard feelings about that on both sides about. Uh, Makes sense. Exactly. I got you. Yeah. yeah. So like, I don't think people, you know, the, the family, the Ted Williams family who, who made this decision and, um, it was, you know, it was their family's ultimately their decision. But, uh, I don't think they were wild about, they're not wild about anybody talking about it because it was a personal family thing, but it, it, there, there was a lot of controversy around it. And the book goes into some detail about it. And, uh, it, I, I think if you pick up the book and read, you'll understand that I was fair in the way I reported it. 
But uh, I talked about, I didn't want to talk about, again, I didn't want to bring it up for the sake of bringing it up. But when the old, when Ted Williams' oldest daughter takes out a website and puts this on her website and then goes in front of TV cameras and says the same thing, John Glenn, my daddy, you were my daddy's wingman um, in Korea. Now he needs you as his wingman. Like I had to put that in the book. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone who's reasonable would understand that that's fair, though, too. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's anytime you get family. Yeah, no, I get family it. No, I do. Aired, dirty laundry aired yep. in public. You have those kinds of situations. All right, Adam, thank you so much for doing it. The Wingman, the unlikable, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams, available August twenty second. Pre order now wherever you pre order books. It's everywhere. Um, for more information, you can follow Adam on Twitter. What's the handle? Lazarus A fifty seven. Lazarus A57. Or go to my website, adamlazarusbooks.com. Or adamlazarusbooks.com. There you go. Anything else? No, I'm looking forward to coming back and starting a draft. See in a few weeks. Yes, the Steelers draft. I'm excited. I already know who I want more than anyone. (laughs) It's for cultural reasons. That's a hint. Oh, I got to think about that. Oh, I think I know who it is. Gave it away. Yeah, probably. All right. uh, Thanks, buddy. All right. Take it easy. I would like to thank Adam Lazarus and Fred Mangione for appearing on the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget, you can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can also find us on X or Twitter or whatever you're calling it these days at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at sportscasters and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 24-inch podcast is available on the Sportscasters feed on SoundCloud as well. At 24-inch podcast on Twitter. At 24 underscore inch underscore podcast on Instagram. 24-inch podcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, search 24-inch podcast and join our group. And don't forget about 3x5 with Steve Bennett every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Search the North-South Connection on YouTube. Please like, follow, comment, review, and send a fax. All right. One last thing for us today. There came the news earlier last week that the greatest Italian soccer player of all time, I'm just going to say it, certainly the greatest goaltender of all time, Gigi Buffon was retiring at the age of 45. I'm actually in a Facebook group called Please Don't Retire Buffon. (laughs) Uh, But the time had come and he retired to much fanfare. Uh, Many tributes online. It was really beautiful. Um, lots of highlights and, you know, I think back to 2006 when Italy won the World Cup and, of course, Buffon was a goaltender. He made two of the clutchest saves in the history of soccer. Um, in the in the semifinals against Germany in Germany, shortly before Grasso broke the 0-0 tie, he made a punch save where his arm seems to come out of nowhere and leaves the German just bewildered. Keeps the score 0-0. Gives us a chance to come back down the other way. Grasso scores. Del Piero scores. We go to the final, right? Then we're in the final. It's 1-1. to We had scored a second goal. It was ruled off sides. That was a goal of bullshit. 
Uh, we're in extra time, and Zidane Zidane gets loose just outside of the bot. I mean, outside of the the six, just basically at the spot. He gets loose essentially at the spot, gets a great header on goal, and Buffon makes maybe the clutchest save in the history of soccer, given the stakes. We go to penalties, and we win the World Cup. Now, that was the last moment. Zidane Zidane had on a pitch besides disgracing himself uh, with the headbutt at Matsurazzi. So two of the greatest saves of all time, just right there. I know he never won Champions League, and, like, that's a bummer for him. I really don't give a shit about the Champions League. You know, I'm more bummed for him. We couldn't have played a better game in 2012, you know, or even in um, in 2000 uh, to get one of, those, one of those Euros that he was – we lost one of the Euros on a golden goal, which they've essentially never done again to France. And we had that game in the last couple of minutes and gave up the equalizer, which is devastating. Lose on the golden goal. And then we lost 4 nothing to Spain and their golden generation in 2012. I wish we could have got him a Euro more than I give a shit about whether or not he won Champions League. But I was sad he retired. I was really sad until the news came out on August 5th, I read from footballitalia.com. Following his retirement, Gigi Buffon has confirmed he will take on the Gianluca Vialli role with Roberto Mancini's Italy staff. I still want to dream with the Italian fans, he said. The goalkeeper decided to hang up his gloves at the age of 45, terminating the contract with Parma a year early. It was reported he was offered the opportunity to join the staff as the delegation leader, and he accepted it today. Listen to this quote. Listen to this quote and tell me if you're not an Italy fan, an Azuri fan, who has loved Buffon for decades now, and he retires only to immediately take a job with the national team and says this. I returned to the Nazian... (laughs) I returned to the national team because that kid that 30 years ago stepped through the gates of the Covarchiano training ground for the first time, still wants to dream and live this dream with the Italian fans. He still wants to dream and live this dream with the Italian fans. Dream with me, Buffon. He holds the record of 176 senior caps with the Azuri, having made his debut in 1997 during the World Cup playoff against Russia. Delegation leader or team manager is a role has been given to Italy legends in the past. Most recently, Viali, um, who held the position from November of 2019 until he's forced to step down due to his health in December 22, when he died a few weeks later at the age of 58. So Buffon retired from the game, takes over from a fallen legend who died of cancer, beloved Azuri figure. A big reason why we won the years. You watch the film. Viali gives all the big speeches, all the motivational speeches. But Buffon, this is like if Breeze retired and then two days later was like, forget TV, forget everything else. I just want to still love the Saints. And I just want a job that gives me the opportunity to love them the most and to just cheer with you and, and to, to root with you and, and to dream with you to dream of returning to the World Cup, to winning a fifth World Cup, to defending the Euro, to reclaiming our place as one of the elite soccer nations in the world, if we don't have that already. 
Buffon, who if he said today, I don't even want to think about the national team again in my life, we'd say, God bless. Thank you. 179 caps, a World Cup victory. What more could we ask from you, G- uh, Buffon? Gigi, what else could we ask for you, from you? But yet here he is. Don't worry, boys. Don't worry, fans. Let's dream together. So I challenge you tonight, Azuri fans around the country, dream with a dream with me, dream with Buffon, dream a dream. What's the next dream to dream? Qualification to the Euros, defending the Euros next year, being champions of Europe again, qualifying for the World Cup in North America, winning a fifth World Cup. Those are the dreams that Buffon wants to have with us still. And damn it, Gigi, I'm ready to dream right with you, buddy.